0: This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We are recording this on a very chilly, at least for PMC and I, very chilly evening, which I think is very appropriate, not only for the big O, but this set of episodes. So buckle up. We're in for a wintry ride. PMC, I introduced you. Do you want to? I was hoping you were going to say
1: we were in for a winter night podcast. Ah, that would be nice. (laughs) Well, that's not what the
0: telephone rang at the beginning of last episode. (laughs) True. True. Oh damn! I need an ending bit. I just realized. We'll say that at the end of the podcast. Uh, third voice out there in, in the wintry mists. Introduce yourself. Hello, it's me, Space Queen Emily. How you guys doing? We're doing great. At least
2: I
1: am. I don't want to speak for PMC. I'm here. I'm alive, and I'm ready. I'm ready to talk about these episodes. I feel like a gremlin about these episodes. I'm really excited to talk about them because I don't. I don't know if I have useful things to say, but I have a lot of very gremlin comments to make. So I'm. Very, very excited.
2: I feel the same way. When you guys gave gave the list of episodes that were available, and I saw nine and ten, I'm like, yes, 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 perfect.
0: Yeah, longtime listeners, of Me- uh, well, I guess longtime listeners for our podcast might remember I was very down on Winter Night Phantom during our Mechanations run. My tone has changed a lot since then, um, but yeah. So we'll get to that when we get to that. But before we do. Emily, introduce yourself. You are, like I mentioned before, a wonderful Twitter follow. We last had you on for your Giant Robot FM debut on a radio-free Mercury episode, talking about Witcher Mercury episode four. Um, yeah, introduce yourself.
2: Uh, well, I'm Emily. Um, I, I've been watching Giant Robot stuff for uh, uh, ever since I was a child. Uh, a pretty, pretty standard origin story. You know, I'm, I'm pushing 30 and my family had a cable subscription growing up in America. So I watched a lot of Toonami and that poisoned my brain for the rest of my life. Watched all the shows, you know, got all the toys, played the video games. I, you know, I was a mark from day one.
0: What's your big O history in particular? Were you there ground zero day one for the tsunami broadcast? I was not. I actually
2: never saw Big O on Toonami. I, I was aware of it because it had such a heavy presence in all the uh, the promos and and the bumpers. Like I remember seeing that *Advanced Robotics* one like a hundred times. That that has so much. Like that's so ingrained into my memory, every frame of that. It actually has um, footage of *Winter Night Phantom*. It has the little uh, toy toy bomb robot mm-hmm. Megadoo stomping around. But as a kid. I always assumed that was just some episode of, like, Superman where he fights Toy Man or something, and I just (laughs) never saw that one. Because in Advanced Robotics, they have shots of of, uh, batman the animated series and Superman, so it it slotted right in perfectly, but it had a lot of other footage of Big O. I feel like that was almost 70% Big O, that promo.
0: There were some Powerpuff Girls in there, too, right, if I recall? maybe powerpuff girls
2: one. maybe that was a different one i don't remember much powerpuff i know they had dragon ball z which always stuck out to me because mm. it was the uh it was one of the movies and i think maybe there was footage of them reconstructing frieza i don't remember but yeah no i i never saw big o until maybe 2014 ish i somewhere along those lines me and a buddy were on a kick of just watching beloved classics that neither of us had yet experienced and Big O just happened to come up on that list, and uh, you know we we were both uh, had the same similar tastes in in Mecca, and we're both all all the way there for Tsunami and stuff. So it was a, a slam dunk. We watched it. We got really into it. Um, we probably watched the whole both both seasons in about a month or two. <laughs> it we were really satisfied. Uh, it was a good time. It ended up being just as good as everyone always said it was. So it it was perfect.
0: What are your Season 2 thoughts? It's going to be a little while before PMC uh, PMC, and I get to that. PMC has seen it, but it's been a while. I have not seen it. I've only, like, through osmosif, osmosis, av- absorbed the vibes from the Internet. So I think I'm predisposed not to like it, but I have an open mind whenever I do get around to it.
2: I've been looking forward to answering this question because I am, I am the mark for Season 2. Season 2 is extremely good, in my opinion. Mm. It's definitely, like functionally absolutely a change you know the the gap in production and then like you know the ways in which you know they were funded and asked to do certain different things but i think it really works i think it's a natural extension it's definitely a change in tone but i think it's one that absolutely works in the confines of the show um i've shown a couple of different like you know friends of mine and family just big o because it's something i think they would like And I always tell them season two is a little different. You know, it was like a couple of years between the seasons, things change. But I try not to like color their perception other than it's going to feel different. And every time they've come away satisfied with the ending. So make of that what you will.
0: I imagine I'll get over the digi paint eventually. I don't want to sound, I don't want to like make the most obnoxious superficial comments about the big O season two, but that has been pushing me away a little, just because the animation season one is so crisp and inviting and atmospheric and quite frankly, gorgeous. No, I totally
2: feel you. It is like such a, I mean, all the designs are the same, but the digital paint really does make it feel completely different. And especially, too, they, they reuse some some bank footage from season one, like stuff like uh, Roger going into the bar to talk to Big Ear, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't exactly flow right into each other because then it'll, you know, use that footage and then cut to like a digital shot of Roger's mouth talking or something. But in that same scene, and it's just, it feels weird, but it's not bad, just different. Less mm-hmm. good, maybe, if you're a, a big cell anime nerd,
0: like I, I assume most people who are into this kind of thing are. Someone had a great Twitter thread, I don't know who it is, but they point out like 2003 was like the last, like the high watermark, the last year for like great traditional cell-based animation, and they pointed to the 2003 Astro Boy show, and the Big O Season 2 did come out that year, and I just wish we had like one last hurrah for Sunrise um, with the traditional animation.
2: yeah. I don't know why, but in my mind, that I always think, like, oh, well, that's Bebop, even though, like, I, I think Big o, well, Big o Season 1 was after Bebop, right?
0: Or Yes, like, immediately after. Right,
2: right. Yeah, I always think Bebop is, like, the last one for some reason.
0: Yeah, Bebop, Endless Waltz, this, all around the same time. All, at least, technically bangers. I think they're all bangers, personally. I don't want to speak for anyone else on the call. I know Endless Waltz has its um, critics,
2: I, I, some would say it's the only good part of Gundam Wing. <laughs> I might say By that virtue well. of being an hour and a half.
0: <laughs> now, before we jump into the summary and our discussions of the episodes proper, I do want to ask, because I saw you tweeting about Emily, how pumped are you for Armored Core 6? It goes without saying that PMC is very excited, but I did see you tweet about it.
2: I, I've actually never really sat down and played an Armored Core. I played a little mm. bit of 5 when it came out, like because it, it had a co-op campaign, and, and me and my buddy, who, who the same buddy I watched Big O with, we've been lifetime mech uh, fans, and we were like, oh, co-op robot campaign, let's go. And um, th- that's about the only dabble I've had in Armored Core 6, but basically everyone else I know went Super Saiyan when that announcement hit, so mm-hmm. I'm very happy for them. I might check it out. Uh, who knows?
0: Co-op is in the game. I mean, story missions are single-player only, according to a recent interview, but co-op will, not co-op, but multiplayer will feature into Armored Core 6.
2: I know that was like a heavy component of 5, which was why it was kind of derided, but uh, hopefully that they've learned lessons from that. I feel like that was so not well-received that they probably aren't going to repeat the extremely heavy
0: emphasis again. Yeah. All right, PMC, are you, uh, oh, do you have something in Armored Core 6?
1: Oh I was going to say I think the speculation around multiplayer is really interesting and fascinating. From approach to multiplayer has been all over. I mean there there you know people I think have talked endlessly about the way multiplayer figures into the Souls games, but even before then, you know, Five and Verdict Day, Chromehounds and that you know that game's multiplayer FromSoft has done a lot of weird multiplayer things over the years, and I do wonder if the multiplayer that is allegedly will be in 6 fits any of those molds. I mean, my guess is that it might be closest to a Souls mold, except that it would be like uh, you can hire... Because Armor, older Armored Core games have this thing. I, I haven't really played any of the 360 PS3 ones. Some of the older ones had uh, ones where you could like hire a wingman, and so I'm wondering if there will actually be like a literal interface for being like, hey... I want my friend to be my my wingman. I'm going to pay them for this mission or something like that. Like that's that is what I imagine in my in my heart my my childhood heart. I don't know if that's going to happen, but we'll see.
2: I've actually like never you know played a, an armored core, but I have played um, some other from soft mech games. Did you, you guys ever heard of uh, another century's episode? That series, yes,
1: yes. the crossover series, yeah
2: that has uh there was like a psp release and you could have your buddies as wingmen in that one so i'm hoping it's just like a weird mission mode co-op thing maybe a way to get yourself out of uh, mech debt or something yeah
1: no that would be that would be really neat too oh man uh, now you have me thinking about whether or not there will be human plus in armored core six that's the whole discussion i could probably list a, a hundred things i'm like will this be in armored core six in some form <laughs>
0: You know, it'd be a weird, um, integration of multiplayer, especially harkening back to the 360 era. If either of you have played Resident Evil 6, you might br- remember this. Of course, there was traditional co op in this game, but also you could become a zombie online and jump into someone's game to, t- <sighs> like, I guess, terrify them. It was the jankiest shit in the world. <laughs> but imagine if you could do that, like, I don't know, uh, become an enemy mech on the battlefield in Armored Core 6.
2: That would be pretty cool. It, like, like the, um, one or two of the boss fights in the souls series where you're summoned like as an invading force for the, for the boss or something. Was it the, the lightning Knight or something in dark Mm. souls two?
0: Sounds right.
1: And eventually I was going to say, that'd be right at home because you know, uh, uh, I think a big thing in, in Armored Core missions, especially older ones, is that it was a big moment when you would encounter an enemy raven in the field. And so, you know, the that sort of idea of the, the enemy soul, the enemy raven invading, uh, extremely at home in Armored Core, perhaps even more so than it was in Souls. <laughs> If
0: Armored Core Six drops this year, which I almost definitely think it will, PMC and I will have to podcast about it, and we'll do a history episode for a simulator app. And we are the people least equipped to talk about the last ten years of From Software's experience. We're both not Souls boys. I, I admire the series from afar. I could talk about Diracene, and that's about it. Meanwhile, you pull in anyone else, any notable gaming person online, all they'll be able to talk about is Dark Souls, Bloodborne, Sekiro, etc. <laughs>
2: Well, only the real FromSoft freaks are like, yeah, Gundam Unicorn on the PS3 <laughs> yeah. that adapted the first three episodes because that was all that was out at the time. That game owns.
0: Yeah, let me tell you about. Let me tell you the good story about Frame Grind.
2: <laughs> what, what was it, Cookie and Cream or whatever? The it
1: platformer, was Cookie and Cream, the greatest FromSoft co-op game ever made. Yeah, there
0: was a DS port of that, right? Yes, that's what we'll talk about. <laughs> <laughs> And I think there was th- that like weird Monster Hunter spinoff with the cats, or like side game, from Software. Some From did something with Monster Hunter in the last seven years. Really? I think so. PMC d- doubts me. He's gonna look it up. I hope I'll yeah, be proven I'm, right.
1: I'm hot on this right now. <laughs> PMC's trying to I, I do have a story
2: here. about uh, Armored Core Five when I played it. Actually, to, to fill time here, I remember you could you made your own guild for the multiplayer in that. And I remember I could not think of a, uh, a suitable name, so I just stole the Preventers from from Gundam Wing and Les Waltz, mm. and I just recreated the logo in the little, like, shitty PS3 MS paint.
1: Hell, yeah. That's beautiful. I, I recreated the GDQ logo in the Armored Core PS1 Emblem editor this week, just, like, on a win. Hell, whim.
0: yeah. <laughs> that looked good. I saw that PMC. Yeah, no,
1: I was, I was happy with that. I am not artistic, but... Also, uh, Steven, you were partially right, although your timeline was a little off. Uh, this game was released in 2010. Oh, fuck. I was off.
0: <laughs> it's funny because I got back into gaming in 2013. and I thought this announcement happened a few years into that. But alas, I thought it had something to do around the time of Monster Hunter World. But again, me- as we'll talk about, memory is a fickle thing.
1: Yeah. Also, just to be clear that the, the game that Stephen was thinking of was called Monster Hunter Diary, which is a spinoff of the Monster Hunter series developed by FromSoftware and published by Capcom for the PlayStation Portable.
2: Looking at these little cats on the cover, it makes me think it's kind of weird that there doesn't have like the what the Kuro and Chiro, the PlayStation Sony mascot cats somewhere in there. Oh I bet yeah. Those are, I bet those are like costumes or something you can Almost get, certainly. right? Like they were they were pushing those guys hard in the PSP era. Yeah, pour one out for PlayStation Home. Oh man. <laughs> what what a time. This is this is really a cursed podcast
0: if we're invoking PlayStation Home.
2: I remember I was playing a lot of um the the Gundam versus PSP game, and I remember me and my buddies setting up that um, like PSP, PS3 LAN party app or whatever to get versus matches on it. What a time! <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, talking about fickle memory and cursed things. Let's jump into Case Nine, Episode Nine, Act Nine of the Big O um pmc is going to read a this is an this is an insert included in the dvd release from bondi entertainment in 2002 i believe i could be off by a year or two with that date i don't think i am though it's either 2002 or 2001 and this is written from the perspective i believe of Dastin.
1: i'm unsure about this because i definitely feel like this text is is from roger's perspective but i guess it's dan who's digging up the files as well what's implied i say right because when we looked at i think it was episode case eight right it said like mm. now dan is reading them, but like i'm gonna read this and i'm pretty sure this is this is uh roger i mean this is roger's perspective uh so the, the the case summary reads that Cretan beck was busted out of jail and now i've been called in on a kidnapping case and have a difficult client i'm sure these two things are simply coincidence and the difficult client language, I feel like, is inescapably Roger.
0: Yeah, I can't, I agree with you. I can't, because I only read the first line. The next one is definitely Roger's perspective, um, which is interesting because Dan introduces the the summaries, and like last DVD, Dorothy introduced the summaries, and the three summaries
1: were clearly hers. Clearly and hers,
0: yeah. It's strange, especially for Winter Night Phantom, you'd imagine that is written from Dan's perspective. That's Dan's fucking episode. You could do
1: it. You could do it from Dan's for that one. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I noticed this. I went I went and looked at the scans on uh, on on Andy's uh website just to be like it's is that I mean, I mean I know you guys definitely pulled it from from there and so it's oh, know, totally. I don't doubt the validity of it, but I had to look for, at it for myself just to be like why why is the first one dance and then the other two were Rogers?" That's that's so weird.
0: Yeah, Dan really got shafted. I guess in more ways than the one else we'll talk about in Winter Night Phantom. <laughs> I I will say I can't I, I guess Roger's word choice can sometimes be awkward and hyperbolic, but when I see Cretin or Cretan, I think of Dastin. I think Dan's saying that. Especially pro- considering how Dan might view criminals.
2: Well, there is the line where Roger calls um calls them a bunch of lousy no good punks or whatever. True. But yeah, I guess I guess Cretin is I mean, yeah. maybe you could use that as the same like line in translation, but that is like a language. That is like a, a different kind of way of talking that does feel at least to me reads more dastin like
0: like referring to criminals as like
1: scum or something mm-hmm. i think it's also important to notice that how personal this is too though because when he's initially conducting the negotiations on behalf of uh, y senior he says like oh this this criminal is a real pro like this may, we're dealing with a pro here and then as soon as he learns that it's back from that point on all the language is extremely derogatory
2: <laughs> yeah, after that, Roger has, especially in a dub, has such a an, a casual affectation to everything. Like when he gets into explaining like uh, how, how extortion works and and the statue example to the to Mister Dandy wise. Mm-hmm. It's really, and then you think, darn, I should have charged him more. <laughs> it's it's such a. I, I don't know. Funny, funny line read.
1: It really makes me think of the uh, you know, cause, especially because it's Steve Bloom doing it. He has a, a side bit in Brave Fencer Musashi where he is like this man who's been oh, yeah who's been like uh, like like locked up on the on the edge of town. Like he's clearly just a, a bad a bad actor, and very much like that's He's slipping into that same mode there in terms of the performance.
2: I love that that bum character. Yeah. God, what a
0: great game. <laughs> that super, game rules. Super good game. Emily, by the way, I was, that's a great Steve Bloom. I was very curious because I saw you mentioned on Twitter like you're going to deploy some impressions, and I'm like, ooh, uh, who's Emily <laughs> going to impersonate? And I was, I'm very pleased with the result.
2: <laughs> thank you, thank
0: you. I will never do impersonations on the show. I'll, I'll make that promise now. We could be podcasting for the next fifteen years. You'll not hear an impersonation from me. All right, episode nine. Beck comes back. Invoking Arkham Asylum, we open on an ocean adjacent jail during a pelting rainstorm as a giant mech attempts to breach its walls. The attackers are attempting to free Beck, who's been incarcer who's been incarcerated since Roger handed him over to the police. They're successful in their breakout. So originally, when I wrote the notes for this two years ago, we were in the like the the early stages of the pandemic, and I wanted to keep one note from that as the, to commemorate those interesting times. And I wrote, "Looks like look like Beck's grown a quarantine beard." And then I added two years later, if it was even possible, Beck looks even douchier.
2: Not only does he have a really asshole uh, quarantine beard. But later, when like when he's officially escaped, he shaves it into like an even douchier, like goatee soul patch thing. Oh, it's so
1: good! All right, Stephen, I want you to be completely honest with us. Have you Google him to search Beck? And have you seen anything that you need to confess?
0: I don't think I have. Good,
1: keep it that way. We'll okay. N- don't t- well, don't do it. Don't Google him to search back. Thank you. Okay. All I right. want. <laughs> but talking about Beck in in uh, in this episode right now. I will say I learned two things when looking him up. One of them is that his first name is Jason, which I don't think it's mentioned uh, in the episode. And then the other was just, I was wondering cause I, I ended up Google image searching Beck, the musical artist. And uh, cause I couldn't help, but feel like there is some similarity, both blonde, both kind of lanky, lanky guys. And this would have been, you know, probably the peak of Beck's popularity in the, in the mid nineties, you know, Odele had come out in like 97, I think. Um, I I don't know if either of you are familiar with the, with the artist but I couldn't help feeling like there was a similarity in physical appearance.
2: I don't know if I've ever actually seen the human being <laughs> back. I have seen the disembodied head for his Futurama cameo episode, mm. but that's a caricature, so it doesn't really count.
1: Yeah, let me grab uh, grab grab a good representational one. Here. Obviously, of course, too. You know, the the man's fifty, so he's he's looked a, a, a bit differently over the years, but. You can kind of see, you know, yeah, second kind of these shots. See
0: it. Yeah. That's a good late nineties, early two thousands pull PMC.
1: Yeah, because I was trying to think too, you know, I mean, so much of this uh, as Andy has repeatedly mentioned to us, this show very much is interested in being American and reproducing various American things. And a lot of those things are, you know, the more more classical North things, the things that are New York City, etc. But, you know, I, I I can't help but feel like they just they just threw in everything they had at their hands, and maybe someone on someone there was interested in Beck, you know the character designer.
2: I don't know. I wonder how much um how much impact Beck had in in Japanese uh pop culture consciousness at the time.
1: I will mention we we have actually had someone on Twitter who has replied a few times to us for past episodes in regards to kind of gauging the extent to which uh, something would have made an impression on, you know, Japanese cultural circles at the time, you're discussing thing like discussing, like, for example, the thing from episode uh, from the, the bring back my ghost episode on, you know, what does it mean that the, the death of a police officer allegedly ended the riots or, or, you know, would, would they know what the Hudson river is in Japan? Like would the average person know that that was the river in New York city. And so this feels kind of like the, the sort of same question we're asking is like, how popular was Beck? Maybe it's like a one of the like great
0: American cultural exports to Japan, right alongside Colombo and Twin Peaks. Yeah, that's the thing is
1: like I don't know if you would, you know, if you hadn't told me, I I don't know if I would have guessed Twin Peaks and Colombo, but apparently it's Twin Peaks and Colombo.
2: Like, looking at him now, just the the picture you posted, it, it sort of reminds me of how um, Yazan Gable from Zeta Gundam mm. is based off that guy in Dune. I've never seen Dune, so I can't oh. speak to it. I just know he's based off of that guy. I've seen like so many, like, did you know Like kind of trivia oh, posts that, about it.
1: That makes so much sense, because it's probably specifically Sting as Faderoth, I think that's what that's probably- Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's yeah, it, yeah. it. Okay. That makes he's sense. He's got like,
2: the, like, the weird like, turtle tattoo yep. and everything. <laughs>
0: So immediately after this Batman-ass opening, we get a dope-ass Roger P.I. monologue. We're not going to read these verbatim, all of them, but I did have a note about this. Emily, could I bother you to read this in Roger's voice like you expertly did before? Of course.
2: This city, Paradigm City, is a town of amnesia. One day, 40 years ago, the people in the city lost their memory of all events prior to that day. But even without a past... They could have a civilization and live their lives if they could learn to operate machinery and get electricity. It's only the city's elderly who mourn the loss of their memories.
0: That, that is fantastic, I Emily. Mean, I can imagine that you using that voice on radio like at 3 a.m. and immaculate vibes, very spooky vibes as I'm driving my car to God knows where at that hour. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I really like this monologue for a lot of reasons. Like You can do a lot of interesting reads of the Big O through various historical lenses. For example, there's been a lot of scholarship about societal collapses, Germany after World War II, the fall of the USSR, exploring how people's collective notion of time is wrecked. Think about it, without the promise of a materially secure future, social safety nets dissolve, crime rates soar, economic relations break down, Communication networks dissolve, and political uncertainty, most importantly, reigns. And you have, as a result, a power vacuum. And this power vacuum could be fertile ground for a dictator or authoritarian, one who promises a return to former greatness, with quotes around it, to rise to power. You know, you have your Hitlers, your Putins, for example. And I think the same could be said about Paradigm City, which Alex Rosewater, I think, rules as a despot maybe some people think otherwise hopefully not because he needs he needs this precariousness and the stagnation which he only perpetuates to maintain his rule if there are too many zaybox searching for the truth the whole thing falls apart and the, the big o obviously condemns the status quo of paradigm city its corruption and squalor are major themes of the show and by extension i think like one of the themes of the big o is you need active and informed political actors whether they be an empathetic negotiator a journalist trying to uncover corruption, or a soon-to-be dead cop feeding information to dissidents. I'm not referring to Dastin here, I'm referring to uh, Bonnie Frazier, to combat authoritarianism. And I really like how consistently The Big O introduces a few active characters who are meant to push back against all of this corruption.
1: Yeah, I think it's really excellent to to hook into how it uses the the monologue and you know, what it's emphasizing at any given time. Because I think something like this, like this monologue both serves a function of, like, it's an episodic TV show. So you're reintroducing people to some of the basic parts of the premise. You're also highlighting, in a sense, parts that are going to be relevant to this episode. And then also there is just an an element to the, like the repetition to have all these informed folks. They need that information and you kind of have to, uh, to guard and transmit that information in order to, uh, you know, in order to have the these useful actors, um I just, Metal Gear Solid 2 suddenly popped into my head while I was saying that. Transmission of information. Hey, do you like memes, Steven?
0: It's it's wild you say that because I'm literally listening to Metal Gear Solid 2 like background noise as we're recording this podcast. Man, Metal Gear Solid 2 continues to be so fucking relevant.
2: I mean, you guys always mention, you know, uh, the the ritual of of Big O and this this being um, largely similar to one of the first monologues Roger does kind of really strikes into that. Like they wanted this to be the kind of show you could just jump in wherever at just one of these, you know, 165 episode long American TV shows that has, you know, maybe not episode to episode continuity, but just a general sense of, of setting. And I think it's 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 a clean way to introduce uh, something that someone could have just stumbled on the channel and happened to be watching.
1: Yeah, it's got I, I've invoked it before, but it's got real, uh, you know, there are eight million stories in the Naked City kind of energy. I always think when I'm taking these
0: notes, like imagine if we got five seasons of the Big O, of like season one quality Big O with stories that are inherently mysterious and inter- introduced to all, and we're being introduced to all these interesting folks in the city just living their lives. Giant robot Columbo, if only. So Roger and Dorothy travel to an estate to meet with an elderly man whose son has been kidnapped. The kidnapper is asking for two million dollars. Uh, we learn a bit more about the climate client, not the climate. His name is Mr. Wise, and he is the he has a son, he's he has a son who is 40 years old. His name is Francis. His son is slated to become the next chairman of the Wise Group. The kidnapper Beck is asking for two million dollars. Um the two continue talking from there. My one note here is I brought this up before. I don't want to beat a dead horse because I don't think it's overwhelmingly detrimental to the quality of season one, but I do want more variety regarding Roger's clients because either most of the time Roger is working for the mega wealthy or Paradigm or both, which I get why. Like that by itself is compelling commentary. Only those privileged enough will have the means to hire a negotiator in the first place. But Roger does talk a big game about being sympathetic to those who live outside the domes. And I believe him when he says this. I mean, how last episode, in episode seven, I think it was, we inferred that Roger was acting as an independent agent on one of his negotiating missions. I just kind of wish he elaborated a bit more, like, what prompted him to do this. Because I think it would benefit his characterization to see him interact with the greater diversity of people. We get glimpses, but rarely anything. If we got that... Uh, version of big o like six seasons in a movie i would hopefully i would definitely want more roger to interact more with different types of people other than the fucking elite and wealthy of paradigm Uh, i was gonna say you saying like
2: six seasons in a movie makes me think like ah yes big o fire walk with me is that is that where they get the actual back to play a bit part
1: (laughs) god there's probably some part of the big o because the big o has parts without music too especially sometimes that you could really set up to like to, to the theme of Lara, and just probably go nuts with. You're probably really <laughs> funny. Uh, what I was going to say is that, you know, I, I, I had initially written down a note where I was thinking about how, you know, it, it's so often the case in, in our lives that networking trumps all, that our ability to interface with, you know, to get any sort of outcome is based on who we know, who we're related to, who we've met in, you know, previously established so- social circles and now that I'm thinking about it more because I was I was trying to think of maybe counterexamples to what Stephen was talking about. I'm sure when you know when Stephen said glimpses of something, you might have been thinking of the one episode opener where he was negotiating on behalf of uh, a woman, and you know it seemed like Paradigm was trying to buy out the house, right? Because we learned that the guy's boss was the Paradigm company anyway. But of I course, want that whole story, I was thinking exactly about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but of course, then you know, I, then I you know I, I'm have to gremlin myself which is to say that i'm like well was much like the fisherman was roger really there on behalf of the people who were in danger of being crushed by a powerful force or was he there on behalf of the powerful force and sort of lessening the blow and so i guess if i were to defend roger what i would say is that maybe he is constantly inserting himself where there is friction between classes and trying to Uh, make things more equitable does he make him equitable enough i don't know but i think that would probably be like the case for for roger smith uh, especially since he you know he announces in episode 10 that he is in fact a meddlesome friend
0: yeah, if I this if this what I'm presenting here is an indictment. It's not an indictment of Roger necessarily. It's an indictment on the writers. But I understand why they did this. I'm just act asking for a little bit more creativity and an opening of imagination as it, when it comes to writing episodes.
2: This is one of those shows, too, where um just such a huge amount of it is like it relies so heavily on its setting and that you can absolutely believe like, Oh yeah. And this is like six weeks after the last episode. So, so many other stories and meetings have happened that we just haven't been privy to. Like later on when, when Daston comes in and he talks about, you know, that criminal Beck is back. And then like Dorothy's there in the background and he doesn't mention like, oh, are you living with the android now? Like that's just an accepted fact. Like Dorothy's there. It's fine.
0: Yeah, there definitely seems to be time, like, you could feel the time that has passed from one episode to the other, and it feels like Roger's been on, like, 20 cases since then. I want some of those cases. I want some of those, like, incidental, smaller cases. Now, to be fair, the writers are going to deliver some of what I want in the next episode or next podcast episode, because Demon Z does deal with a different class of people, and that's one of the reasons why I find that episode so refreshing, other than the holiday vibes, the holiday time vibes.
2: The very rare Christmas mecha anime episode, although Sunrise, I guess, is the champion of that. Uh, Endless Waltz, War in the Pocket, uh, that that bit in Brain Powered, that's one of the only things most people know about Brain Powered, myself included. shout to Russell.
0: Shout-outs to Russell. Shout-outs to Russell. How, how, uh, I didn't know about the Brain Powered one. I was going to say, I know of the, the big three, which I think is Big O, War in the Pocket, Endless Waltz. There's an episode of the Pat Laver TV show that deals with Christmas, which I haven't seen, but I've seen it cited on Twitter. And oh, now, very true. And now there's Brain powered. I, I wonder if there's a 6th, 7th, or 8th. I think of the Tenshi Universe, if you want to consider that a mecha show. Oh, um, hell which, yes. Yeah, which is one of my favorite episodes of anime period. I used to always watch it in expectation of a snow day when I was in high school.
2: What, what was that one? Like No Need for Memories or something like that? Oh, I, just, I just watched it like
0: two weeks ago. I should remember the damn title. I love Tenchi Universe. Same. My handle online when I was in middle school was a Little Washu. I
2: I I, I saw Toonami's run of Tenchi, but like it, it was one of those shows that just exited my brain basically like immediately. And then during the pandemic, like the, the initial lockdown, me and my friend were like, "What if we just tried to learn what Tenchi actually is?" And we went on such a deep dive, like every tenchi related thing that you could think of like dual parallel trouble adventure an actual mecha anime but uh, it has it's by the tenchi guy and it has vague relations to tenchi in form of they mentioned something adjacent to the lighthawk wings once good enough for me put it on the list you know ah uh, what a what a what a fun time
0: those designs from was it dual parallel trippers am I getting that wrong I fucked it up I think Parallel
2: Trouble Adventure.
0: No, there's no. There's a reason why. The Grandia Game Boy Color game, hold on, I'll be redeemed oh, oh, in a man. second. Oh, that's a poll. Yes, Grandia Parallel Trippers. For some reason, I always confuse the two titles, even though they have very little, if nothing, in common. That's how my mind works, scatterbrained at best. But the, the mech designs from that show rule. I posted two of them on Mechaday.
2: Like, the, the initial guys are just like rip off ava units basically Mm. but then like the the big combined guy is like is is one of those like clay doll armor things that you would find in like 75 percent of the way through a jrpg
0: (laughs) very true before mr wise can tell roger about his son the phone rings roger picks up it's beck asking if they're ready to pay roger begins negotiating increasing his client's anxiety roger tells beck that the Wises are having financial trouble and are unable to pay the requested $2 million. He's playing hardball. Beck hangs up. Mr. Wise dresses down Roger and tries to fire him.
1: So I've, I've talked a lot of shit about Roger. Uh, and I want to say that, hey, you know what? Props to him. He is actually living up to his title in this episode. He is in control, calm, cool, collected... And I want to note that because when not when things happen that are the opposite of what I've been saying, I like to also point that out.
0: yeah, we actually see Roger fucking negotiating like he doing his shit rolling up his sleeves and doing the negotiation like the, the grimy work of negotiating.
2: Yeah, it's one of those instances where it doesn't so immediately slam into a oh, megaduce giant robot fight you get to see a bit more of Roger that isn't just what if we thought of this cool espionage scene which they do later for sure, but I like that they that they focus on on the actual interpersonal dealings of what it means to be a negotiator like capital in the actual word definition negotiator but also i have a a a nitpick with this scene the english dub actually has a a weird little error the the shot of um the 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 guy on the phone is clearly uh t-bone the uh the shorter henchman of beck But the dub, uh, I guess, thinks it was Beck, so it has Bob Buchholz doing the Pinching His Nose going, we need the $1 million
0: thing. Mm -hmm. It is Uh, not the case in Japanese. Interesting. I felt something was a little off, but I didn't actually go back for the third watch to check that out.
2: It's Beck the second time, and you definitely also see Beck Pinching His Nose, but they they mistake it the first time for also being Beck. So I thought that was interesting. You don't normally see something like that in, in the Big O.
0: Yeah, usually the localizers are pretty good with that
2: it's It's not like it detracts from the enjoyment or anything, but I just think it's a a, a neat little error that you can look at and go ha ha the the benefit of foresight and having the the nice you know nicer mm-hmm. modern day transfers
1: and it's definitely glaring too because you 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 otherwise might find yourself asking, well wait a second, why is it that Beck only recognizes Roger the second phone call and well, it's because it wasn't Beck on the first phone call,
2: yeah, yeah, that's true. I didn't even think of that.
0: All right, so after the quote falling out between Roger and Mr. Wise, we transition back to Roger's apartment where he's painting a portrait of Dorothy who is posing for him. I I really do like this scene. It shows how comfortable they are getting with one another. It reminds me of the scene—this might seem like a strange pull, but I've referenced Rats like a few episodes back. And so I'm going to reference another quote-unquote classic from the Kevin Smith canon, which is Clerks 2— there's a scene with Brian O'Halloran and Rosario Dawson. Uh, he's painting her toenails. The scene reminds me of just how comfortable Dorothy and Roger are, minus like the creepy fetishization going on in the clerk's two clip. Like it, at this point, it looks like they're going to play up the romantic connection between them, with Dorothy being the pursuer. I would love to get more of her perspective. What glimpses we've been given, Dorothy ripping up Angel's calling card, have been really compelling. But this, to to be frank, this is the first time I've read Roger's feelings as romantic, too. Don't get me wrong. The show has been signaling Dorothy's romantic interest from the start. But Roger has kept more of a distance or hidden his feelings. But this activity, Dorothy posing for Roger as he paints her nails, feels... No, excuse me. Paints, (laughs) not her paints her nails. I'm confusing with clerks, too. As Posing for Roger as he paints her feels more intimate. Like, this isn't something you do with your dad or... I would argue you wouldn't necessarily do it with your platonic friend. Not that you can't do it with your platonic friend, but when I mean, I'm painting someone, I think that speaks to an intimacy. Even if you're not actively intimate with someone, I feel like if you're painting them, you're on the road to intimacy. And Dorothy did request her portrait to be painted by Roger, but at this point, I think he's equally as invested, even if he might not realize it yet. That, that's another thing. I wish I could have gotten that scene of her asking
2: uh, to be to be painted it's one of those like you know it's not necessary, but i i I do want to see that, I want to see Roger's reaction to that,
1: yeah, like there's definitely implication like it- I, it's it flows nicely that she would ask for that because the whole time she's in the uh the wise estate, she is clearly fixated, and you know we're constantly shown sort of her in front of the portrait of the of the wife or i guess the the mother I should say really as we as we learn. But I, you know, it's it's definitely uh, it it's good visual storytelling. But ah, uh, yeah, I want Roger's reaction. I, I want to know what what's on his brain. Also, I
2: think you had a good idea there. I, I do wish it was Roger painting her nails. That that would also be <laughs> a very good scene. <laughs> that would say a lot about Roger, and that would say a hell of a lot about Dorothy.
0: <laughs> oh man, the the fuel that would provide fan artists with. <laughs>
2: I want her to have, like, the, the ghost-in-the-shell, like, extendo finger things to,
0: for, for insane oh, typing.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, on that note, give me some Amara Oshi monologues in all my shows. Hell yes, please and thank you. You imagine,
2: like, the, the difference in tone if it, you just had Roger driving by, like, the city slums and you had that big Kenji Kawai landscape sound happening?
0: You just described my ideal version of the Big O. As much <laughs> as I love this show, I've I mentioned I want Pat Labor too in big O in Paradigm City, basically. I do like Dorothy more in this partner role, accompanying Roger on jobs and giving him advice. Like in the beginning of the show, we see her more relegated to a domestic role, kicking around the part with Norman until Roger returns. But now she's more of an active participant in the plot, which I appreciate.
2: Yeah, it feels like a natural extension coming after the, uh, the, the instro stuff where she ended up getting so directly involved that maybe she just can't help being involved in the future cases after that. That and missing cat. I mean, missing cat especially, but it, it's a natural progression. It, it feels right. It, it yeah, between that and and her asking to be painted, it it just feels like such a nice contrast to the beginning where she's shining her head disc flashlight at the opposite side of the dining room table, and Roger's just like, cut <laughs> that shit out. I don't stop it. That. That's weird. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting how they you had the escalation multiple times from you know the episodes that we covered last week. Uh, I mean, you know, thinking of her showing up underwater, you know, in in the Big O, and then being so personally involved with with the cat. It's it's good. It it provides that sensation of arc. You know, I, I think everything is so compact in this show. You have to like make sure you're paying attention to see how we end up arriving at you know, the points that we have in this episode, but also, for example, are the points that we'll get to in Demon Seed.
2: Also, if Dorothy wasn't in on the adventure, you wouldn't get shots of Dorothy in the cockpit. And you know what? She just fits there. She's a great cockpit ornament.
0: I mentioned it before. I men- I'll mention it again. I really wish we got an episode solely from Dorothy's perspective as she goes on a job, like a, a Roger Smith-ass job, whatever that job might be. I want to see her perform the role of negotiator.
1: I wonder if Dorothy can drive... My answer would be yes. I don't know why she wouldn't, but it'd be funny. And then someone could say that she has a lead foot. <laughs> of course she just uh, she
0: just furiously runs from location to location.
2: Yeah, I want to see like the super speed Dorothy from uh, episode 1. Mm. <laughs> her busting out of like the Griffin hangar with the same kind of of ludicrous sense of l- speed and importance that that Roger gave her when trying to drive her to piano lessons.
0: Could you imagine a Paradigm City, like New York City, had a marathon and just Dorothy smoking everyone?
2: I want to see. I want to see like Dorothy pick up like the odd job of courier. She's just <laughs> delivering delivering people's pizzas or something.
0: Oh, oh I want to see her in P- as Peter Parker in Spider Man too. Hell yeah! There you go. There you go. Imagine all the like weird
2: robot pirouettes that would happen while while balancing pizza.
0: Yeah, that's when Paradigm the company would get even more shitty and start like passing laws about androids doing menial labor and stuff like that.
2: The big O, the first strand type anime.
0: Oh, see, now you're real. That's the intersection of so many steer Steven hero interests. (laughs) Mr. Wise calls Roger back. They patiently wait for a phone call from Beck. Meanwhile, Mr. Wise informs Roger that he paid the kidnappers the ransom. Roger says, to you the victim is a precious son, but not to the kidnappers. He's just a commodity. Roger reassures Mr. Wise that the kidnappers have not hurt Francis. He recommends that going forward they haggle so as not to appear desperate. Roger and Dorothy return home. Norman tells Roger he has a visitor. Dastin's casually rooting through Roger's cabinets, looking for a wine bottle he gave him way back when. He stopped by to see if Rogers had any interactions with Beck now that he's escaped from prison. Roger tells him that he hasn't. Dastin mentions that he didn't he doesn't see the wine bottle that he said I tried to that he'd want to drink with Roger the next time he was over. And then Roger says, Oh, I drank that with another guest and I really bumped on these lines. I I wonder if Roger's deflecting here or if he actually sat down and shared wine with someone else. I don't get the sense that Roger has any friends outside of Norman and Dorothy. Like he, he comes across as a loner, lost in his thoughts in the presence of his hourglasses. Like maybe he's referring to a client. It probably wouldn't be unusual to seal the deal with a glass of wine after um, picking up a new client. Maybe he had wine with Norman. I think he does deep down want to connect with other people, despite what he might say publicly. In my my read of Roger's, that's why he became a negotiator, to fill that void. And this also pairs nicely with Dorothy's question about loneliness later, that it can help catalyze or encourage people to forge relationships with others.
1: I think Roger either drank it by himself or he just hit it because he knows daston wants it and he w- doesn't want to give it to Dustin.
0: Yeah, I'm in the latter camp. I think he's bullshitting <laughs> daston 100%. That was my original. No, I'm trying to give Roger the benefit of the doubt here. Not to say that drinking wine by yourself is inherently sad or anything. I just, I'm thinking maybe he had, I don't know, he, he can peel potatoes with Norman. Maybe he sat down and awkwardly had wine with Norman. Was
1: was wine in the subtitle? Because I don't think he says wine out loud. I I'm I, I thought it I just assumed it was like whiskey or brandy or something. It's the word choice that I guess yeah there's something that that suggests wine wine, by all means like here i'm not i'm (laughs) it is i'm not a drinker so Mm
0: -hmm. i can't really speak uh, with any expertise here but when someone says bottle i think wine maybe it's the fraser stand in me
1: yeah i don't remember
2: what they actually said uh i in my mind i think they just said bottle or something i don't know if they ever specified
1: i guess it's always because i always see them drinking from you know tumblers on the rocks and like Obviously, you would not drink wine that way. So, my my assumption is always that it is some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of distilled liquor.
2: N- not to jump ahead, but uh, m- my theory is that he's bullshitting, uh, Dustin, and then that's the the bottle they share in Winter Night Phantom.
1: Mm. that could be. That could be. No, that's a good connection. That's I, good. Yeah. <laughs> now you want? Now I really want a scene where Rogers like, oh, by the way, the and like in like an Arnold tone of voice, like. Do you do you remember when I told you I drank that bottle? I lied. <laughs> it's 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 also worth noting that
2: like the D- Dawson's reaction to that is just such a what? <laughs> 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 like he's so flustered by it. Like I know to a degree, um, Angel is is certainly supposed to be evocative of, of Fujiko Mine from Lupin, but that specifically is such a bumbling Zinigata type moment.
0: Now you're at, like making me think about another version of the Big O I would like to see, which is the Fraser version, where you're having these like the basic ass domestic quarrels that are elevated to dramatic heights, like who drank the wine bottle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In this case, Roger would be Fraser, and Dastin, who is offended that Roger drank the wine, would be Niles. It's weird thinking about Dan Dastin as Niles Crane, but nonetheless, that, that seed has been planted in my mind.
2: Did you guys ever listen to the um, the, the audio drama for Big O? I'm I have not. not. Uh, it, it is translated um, by the actual like official translator for Big O. I think it's might even still be hosted. Like The English translation might still be hosted on Chiaki Konaka's website. Mm. Uh, I only think about it because there is a scene where everyone just kind of shares a bottle and get, gets kind of drunk, and it's pretty fun. Ooh, I'm definitely uh,
0: planning to check it out before we get around to doing our Big O Season 2 history episode.
2: Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. I I honestly like it a lot. Um, And it is, uh, if I, if my memory serves right, it is s- set between seasons. So it would be uh, interesting to, to check out, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I need more supplemental material to pad out that history episode anyway.
2: <laughs> there you go. F- finally, read the manga, maybe, or at least a volume. Get get a little bit of insight on that.
0: Whenever we get around to it, it's going to be like that Austin Powers joke. Like, what happened since you uh, were cryogenically frozen? Well, there's a flock of seagulls and an oil spill, and that's about it. That's like, that's the big O season two history episode right there.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Um,. I, I, I remember that there is a manga, but I, I always tend to forget the instant after I hear it. I, I just need a, I need to steal the, the vault of memories of the, of the existence of the Big O manga so I can actually force myself to sit down and read it.
0: Yeah, there's the six volumes that Viz brought over of the first manga series. There's also a follow-up manga series, which I think was collected in two volumes That is has not been translated into English, which I'm very curious about.
2: Oh, really? Not, not even, like, scanlated or anything?
0: No oh wow andy's talked about potentially getting on that and uh hopefully someone sometime uh, does that because i'm very curious because it was tied into the release of the big o season two.
2: Oh, that's really interesting i'd love to learn about that
0: also like i mentioned on previous episodes and as andy has echoed on twitter viz just released the fucking six volumes in the states again just reprint it please i know just just wait for some anniversary
2: and like run an omnibus release come on I can't be so Im- cases of that where they just drop the ball on it like I remember when I got into Trigun I got into it like at 3 or 4 years ago like super late and I was like I want to buy the manga now thank you I know there are sweet omnibus releases and it's oh no uh did you didn't buy them 2 years ago they're all out of print fuck you
0: They are so expensive I'm hoping for a reprint with the upcoming series please if, if
2: anything good comes out of ma- uh, maximum or not uh, is, is it called Maximum? I forget what the, what the anime Maximum is Maximum is
0: the manga. Is, uh, what's the new orange Oh, Stampede, anime? right? Strike on Stampede? Yeah. If anything good comes out of Stampede, it should at least be a reprint of the manga. Come on. Beck phones the Wises, asking again for the $3 million. Roger picks up the phone and tells him that the family doesn't have the money. Beck recognizes his voice, gets flustered, and requests that Roger put Mr. Wise on the phone. Mr. Wise caves to his demands. As they drive to the agreed-upon location, Roger tells Dorothy that he thinks Mr. Wise is hiding something from him. He's not optimistic that their negotiations will end anytime soon. They arrive at what looks like a ski lodge on top of a mountain. They hear a gunshot and barge in. They find Francis gagged and bound on the floor. Before Roger has time to react, a dozen or so cops show up. Daston announces that they have the house surrounded. Maybe Daston's hands are tied, but even with the established incompetency of the military police, I find it hard to believe that Daston thinks Roger has anything to do with the kidnapping, unless he thinks that Roger will help him get to Beck. I also find it weird that Roger's actually worried about this and decides like to peace out. Like, Or maybe Dastin doesn't want the military police to think he's going soft on Roger because of their friendship, so he plays it up here. I will say, occasionally, to work everything out within the 22-minute runtime of an episode, the writers of The Big O will try to add tension to the narrative, and by doing so, they'll either include a scene that doesn't logically track or that just sticks out tonally. I'm reminded of the bit, and PMC mentioned this earlier, from episode 5, with the protesters stopping their advance because one cop died. I feel a similar issue here where I feel like they are trying to add an unnecessary layer of tension to speed the narrative forward.
2: Yeah. This scene always bugged me. Like I, I've, I've seen this show so many times and this always just sticks out like a sore thumb. Like there isn't that big of a time crunch really necessary. Like, yeah. Um, uh, Francis obviously needs medical attention, but uh I, I don't know roger you, you know the lead cop in charge he knows your line of work uh you have uh, uh mr wise there to to like explain things i i don't know why you're just running away and assuming you're being set up it, it's the simplest thing to explain like even even if there was like if there was a time crunch like oh i, I can't be bothered to go down to the station and, and have to sort things out and fill out paperwork for the next six hours like I don't know. It, it It's not as life or death as the show treats it as.
1: So I think I have a reading of the script that makes it make more sense. I'm not happy about it, but I think the explanation I would offer, and this is Im- based on implication at something at the end of the episode. So, so it really isn't good. Like it's not a good explanation, but at the very end of the episode out of nowhere, Mr. Wise shows up and they're like, hey, officer, let me tell you what really happened. And so I think the implication is that Mr. Wise, at the urging of Beck, called Daston and said that Roger was the kidnapper. I think that is a part of the setup. It is not just that Roger was in the place at the same time. Uh, it was specifically that he was fingered as the guy by by mr wise i have to assume that's why mr wise shows up at the end of the episode of course this still doesn't excuse dan's behavior it's still on its face absurd i and my personal read is just that he is pissed about the drink
2: (laughs) I, i think that does check out because i guess there is the factor of of um mr wise not wanting to get any like any of this information out but it definitely feels like They had a logical explanation, and it it just did not have time to make it into the final episode. Just cut that part of the script out. We need to do uh, an extensive robot fight.
1: We need to have Dorothy on the roof of the car.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Speaking of Dorothy, I really like the delivery Leah Sargent has when they're in the car, where she just says, What about your haggling plan? (laughs) (laughs) Every syllable in
0: haggling always just drives me wild. Oh, I love whenever Dorothy takes the piss out of Roger.
1: When I I find that Leah like uh, Leah Sargent's acting as like whenever Dorothy is at her most sarcastic begins to sound so close to Shion Uzuki from Zeno Saga at like also Leah Sargent role at her like most analytical or her most venomously analytical, which is as a you know as a scientist character she often does, uh, and it's excellent. Shout out to Leah Sargent.
2: It's so hard, especially, I feel like, uh, in English dubs, maybe it's just part of the language barrier that does it, but, like, the the kind of, like, not quite emotionless, but, like, you know, robotical uh, anime girl voice always feels like such a stumbling block in, in some performances, and Leah Sargent just knocks it out of the park literally every single time. Uh the buddy I've watched this with who is much more of a, a subs guy than a dubs guy, even he's like she she's the best robot girl. it's it,
0: no contest she's great pm so you gotta get around to streaming Zenosaga episode two one of these days
1: Oh it's gonna happen it's gonna happen that'll 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 happen yeah yes, Steve and I will play Zenosaga episode two. <laughs> I
0: said that last sentence as I'm watching Santa on a fire truck drive in front of my house. make of that what you will. Roger activates his car remotely and manages to escape with Dorothy. lot of cool Gundam Wing-ass espionage bits here, like the escaping sedan, the car changing colors, Dorothy properly contorting her body to slip through the sunroof. Uh, kudos to the animators, because all this reads very well and it's very fun to watch.
2: What if Roger had that like stupid like hand helicopter umbrella thing that Duo had in the beginning of Gundam Wing?
0: I like this episode a lot, but that I would wish. elevate this episode yeah. to untold levels.
1: That would be incredible. And any, like literally any sort of flying device, I think like handheld flying device would be perfect for, for Roger to just whip out at some point.
2: He, he 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 needs the like the Lupin watch that's also like a, a grappling hook cable wench thing.
1: I will say though, I don't think anyone really has a car quite like Roger's car. I believe it's called the Griffin because I think uh, it's been mentioned a few times now in the podcast. Yes, and, the Griffin. Yeah, and so if you just paint it red, like we all still know what it is, man. I don't, <laughs> I don't know who you're fooling here. Like I'm just imagining again, you know, to make the comparison to Batman. What if you painted the Batmobile red? People would still notice the Batmobile.
2: No one else in Paradigm has a car that's like 16 feet long and or 16 feet wide and 28
0: feet long, like Roger. I don't disagree with you, PMC. I like this scene because it sets up a killer meme, or I think it's mm-hmm. a killer meme, which I'll deploy on Twitter later, because uh, it might speak to the incompetency or like the the just the dumbness of the military police that they can't pick out the correct car when it's in a different shade of color.
1: It's just but such a, it's like such a GTA pay and spray kind of thing, where it's like, yeah, color's <laughs> different now. You'll never be able to find me. Yeah, it's certainly video game logic you guys remember
2: that shot in Gundam Wing where the truck is just absurdly wide? Yeah. <laughs> in some shots, that's what the griffin feels like to me. Especially, I think, in episode one, maybe it is, when we first get the, the money shots of it. It just feels so wide. It takes up, like, three
1: lanes. I'm so... Ups- the thing that really upsets me about that truck, to get into uh, to get into mecha truck discourse, uh, shout outs to Tom ball. I was just about to say, we gotta get Tom yeah. on the call, though. Is that, <laughs> like the The front seat the bench seat extends across the entire width of the truck. that is what's most messed up about it to me. It should really just be a seat for an operator and maybe a passenger, but you could like have you and all all of the boys you could have choo choo and all of her union dads on the, <laughs> the sitting in the front of this truck.
2: Imagine if the gear shift was dead middle.
1: <laughs> yeah, you have to operate it as a
0: team. <laughs> That speaks to the power of friendship, one of the central mm-hmm. themes of many Mecca shows. It's true. H-
2: have that be the next like big exam moment in G Witch. Like you had to do the-, the five team battle. We need like the five team car operation. Suleta,
1: you can't be a trucker on your own. You need <laughs> you need a team.
0: <laughs> oh, I can just imagine Suleta behind the wheel of a pickup truck or like a four wheel uh, a four any four wheel drive vehicle and just panic stricken as she's mm-hmm. trying to navigate a highway or something.
2: And Choo Choo would be the worst backseat driver in the world. She would have she would have road rage to cover Siletta's anxiety.
0: She would make a great intergalactic intergalactic trucker, though. Like that episode of Bebop Heavy Metal Queen, I could see Choo Choo in that role.
2: Again, I, I must bring up like I did in um, uh, the Witch for Mercury episode, Zone of the Enders TV anime about a, a space trucker great show
1: okay actually you know what i'm we're going so deep on tangents right now but i was just watching someone speedruns over the end yesterday and they mentioned that the movie movie and tv show are actually uh take place prior is to the first game is that is correct that, that is correct okay i didn't see i did the, not know that
2: the first ova actually has a bit with um Oh, what's her name? Viola, mm-hmm. um, the the initial antagonist lady, right? The pilot it, of Neath. Yeah, uh, it actually focuses like she's she's not the main character, but they give a really heavy amount of screen time on her. And then the second uh, or the the TV series actually has like Noman as sort of this like surprise background like element in the last. Like he's not super important, but it's just like oh here here's here's the guy you're you're gonna know is gonna become Noman. And it's like wow, that's wild. But also the, the the romanization is all messed up so he's Norman or something, I forget. <laughs> 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 that that had some real like they they did not like have, I guess like a series term uh bible or anything, especially cuz I mean, you know how wacky the localization is that the Enders 2 gets, but a lot of a lot of inconsistencies like that. I remember at some point there's mention of orbital flames. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's very good, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. You mentioned
0: Emily, the first OVA. I thought there was only one OVA. Are there two OVAs in the TV show? No,
2: I guess it's just in my mind. It's like first piece of media, gotcha. second piece of media.
0: I don't want to call you out there, but I was just curious if there was something else I didn't know. No, no, no. um The
2: the there's like narrative connective tissue between the two, even though they aren't like strictly um like a sequel or anything. But it, it's definitely a case if you should watch the OVA first before you watch the TV show. It, it feels like one of those weird uh, uh, dot hack multimedia franchise things where, oh, this definitely clicks if you read the m- manga adaptation of the side novel kind of things.
1: Yeah, remember, it's important to consume all of the media. Oh God! Oh no!
0: <laughs> I, PMC I, listeners is, is holding up his c- cartridge of Fist of Mars. Yep, that's correct. That I I can't believe you
2: had that so easily on hand.
1: <laughs> I I have reasons. I uh, maybe I'll
2: discuss them in the future. <laughs> a physical copy of Fist of Mars? How cursed!
0: <laughs> PMC, did you get that from our local yes game store?
1: I did. Nice.
2: I can't believe anyone has that physically. That's just that's such a. Oh, there's a Zone of the Enders game in my in my legally obtained ROM list. I'm gonna check that out. Oh no, it's like Super Robot Wars, but you have to manually aim every attack. This blows.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have thoughts <laughs> about that. I have thoughts the uh, look, I'll say it. The reason I'm I have it and I'm looking into it is because as a joke, someone once told me that they would speedrun the game if I did a speedrun of it. And, oh let's
2: go and,
1: and so nothing nothing entertains me more than the idea of a very stupid suicide pact uh, and so perhaps in the future uh, that will happen uh, that, that's a ways off yet I've, I have some other obligations I need to handle first
0: all right so Dastin never does find uh, Roger's car uh, Roger then goes to confront Mr. Wise uh, Roger tells him Francis isn't your real son is he the kidnapper knew that there's an extended monologue that goes on from there by Mr. Wise. He tells him that um, he his Francis's mother was pregnant when the event happened, and in the aftermath of the event, they became a couple. Uh, she died shortly after the birth of Francis, um, but they are not related by blood. Uh, Mr. Wise and Francis, that is. So 40 years ago. Everyone lost their memory in Paradigm. Francis lost his memory. Enough, oh, Francis. Francis's mother lost his memory. Mr. Wise lost his memory. So Mr. Wise is just, you know, like most people, confused, seeking comfort. He lands in the arms of Mary. Any guesses as to who Mary is? When I read it this time around, I was like, the maid, totally. Because it would have to be someone who lived or worked in the Wise family estate. And technically, I could also see it being like something incestuous because... I get, like, gothic story vibes from a lot of Big O episodes and a lot of gothic stories. I'm thinking of a few Edgar Allen Poe short stories deal with away noblemen who get up to all sorts of debauched behavior, and occasionally that behavior involves incest. But here, when it makes sense, just because they're not related by blood, um, so that wouldn't necessarily track, because then Mr. Wise would have some blood shared with Francis. I, but I think the May tracks because the big O is very keen on showing how debauched the rich are in this world, like in our world. And I think that
1: comparison tracks. Trying to track what kind of social scandal is going on here. Like, I don't know. I have difficulty because I think some of your explanations, you know, is it from a different social class or is it just generally being out of wedlock or something like that? Like this is one of those things very much like the, you know, like the protester or something else where, there are like many explanations and I really do think this is like intentionally them because we, we know, we know that the people in the writer's room doing the writing are thinking about hand-waving things. You know, we have several explicit hand-waves that happen throughout this series at the end where Roger's like, forget about it. And this very much feels like that situation where they're like, look, it would be a scandal if this happened. Trust us.
2: I mean, would the concept of shame of a child out of wedlock exist if an event wiped out everyone's memories?
0: That's what I was thinking. That's why I thought that this, this plot twist is a little convenient in the first place, which is par for the course for the Big O. It's not a point I obsess about, but I couldn't help thinking, who's Mary?
2: You'd think, too, like, I, he, the way he phrases it, like, you know, we were both alone in that house and we found each other. Uh, I mean, like, you, you, maybe there's, like, pictures of i mean sure or or at least portraits of of family or or you know people who would be like some sort of trinket that would help you learn who you are where you're at but maybe it's the mansion's just that huge i don't know
1: do we know for sure that this doesn't like flip the other way around if there's a portrait of her as opposed to him is he what if he's the butler Yeah, yeah what if he's the interloper who like and the problem is that the, the legitimacy of the ownership of the group wouldn't really pass from him to his son. His son may be, you know, have been the legitimate, you know, I guess, heir all this time. Again, assuming anyone's even here to enforce these things because there was an apocalypse. I will
2: say that the portrait of her comes later because when they cut to the flashback, it, the portrait changes. Mm. Like it's it, it stays on the same shot, but it changes to a different man.
1: Right, 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 right true
0: yeah my read was i like your read a lot pmc that mr wise was just so head over heels in love with mary that he commissioned a portrait be made of her maybe well if roger were old enough maybe roger painted it (laughs) i don't know it looks uh good (laughs) (laughs) this did get me thinking though about the idea of a memory wipe and how liberating and tragic that could be because on the one hand there's something appealing about a memory wipe because it represents the promise of a second chance like the ability to wipe the slate clean and remake your life a lot of movies like uh, romantic comedies have dealt with this idea of like what would happen if your memory got erased and you were able to relive your life again like all you have all these old grudges grievances failures are potentially a thing of the past but on the other hand and i feel like a 19th century naturalist writer here making this observation, but you could argue that we're all a product of our environments. Like, none of these characters are able to break free from the conditions of their birth or the legacy of their past. Like, all these old scientists are haunted by their past creations. The rich continue to get richer, the poor slip deeper into poverty, which seems very tragic and it is. But I would say that the big O takes a very optimistic approach in suggesting that young people, it's the youth, that might be able to break from this cycle.
2: This is the first time I, I really keyed into like the,
0: or I, mean, I guess the show really
2: keyed into the optimism of the the, the potential optimism of the memory white because it 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 really does read into the romance of it the the way he he goes on about you know they they found each other and they didn't know who they were or what they were doing but they were within each other's reach they had someone to lean on through that. And it, it, it felt really genuinely touching. I, I was impressed by this. This is the first instance of this that wasn't like soul crushing, basically. Like every other time, it's just it's so aggressively sad. Here's the android replicant of a dead pianist's son, you know, and all he's got left by is, is the memories of being a replacement. And what does that mean? Is that even inherently sad? But this is the first time where it's like, oh, this is a brand new beginning. This this could be positive for once.
0: Yeah, try to tell that to Dastin in the next episode. (laughs) That's where it all comes crashing down, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Wise tells Roger the location of the drop-off point. He and Dorothy speed over there. Dorothy, unusually inquisitive, poses Roger a philosophical question. She says, so Mr. Wise fell in love out of loneliness then? Roger says, Dorothy, that question is too tough. What's your second question? Dorothy cryptically says, that's all right. The other one is even tougher. Now, this is obviously leading to Dorothy expressing her romantic feelings for Roger to Roger. I like how this revelation, with quotes around revelation, builds on the visual motifs that the Big O has been deploying even though it is pretty overt, it's not aggressively overt, and I appreciate that.
2: I like the way the, the dub handles that line, because I think it's it's something a bit more like, instead of tough, I think they say difficult or something. I don't know, it, it doesn't sound right in my head to hear Dorothy say a word like tougher. So they phrase yeah. it like, the next one will be even more difficult, or something like that. It just it just reads better. It's, it's another example of the, the dub script really just being very good.
0: Yeah, I mentioned this before, but this is one of those shows where I would always recommend the dub over the sub, even though I am a dub boy. This, Hellsing, Cowboy Bebop, I would recommend checking out the dub first.
2: Uh, I've been rewatching the whole show uh, just because you guys got me in the spirit of it. And uh, I'd always said to myself, okay, the next time it'll be in Japanese. Okay, for sure, the next time I'm going to commit. Okay, this time for sure. And this is the time I'm actually doing it. Mm. so it's been interesting to uh to finally i mean i i know all of these line reads just by heart like they are engraved and um it it's it's a refreshing way to experience it in, in, in a lot of ways i'm going yeah this is good i'm so used to the dub though i what if i like the dub more actually oh no
0: to be shunned from your various anime communities online i say jokingly <laughs> It, it's
2: especially different because, like, some of the some of the just voices uh, on display are are so very different in terms of like just quality and performance. Like, you know, I like the dub a lot, but I always felt like, um, Peter Lurie as Dostin is just is kind of whatever. But in Japanese, he's Tatsuo Genda, and that guy has such a career, mm. such a heavy hitter career, and to hear him played with like a bit more experience and gravitas is is interesting it provides a a neat contrast and um the same goes for beck Uh, in this episode you get a lot of good beck stuff and i like Bob coles as beck you know he's 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 my boy gene an outlaw star fun fun voice actor he plays beck wonderfully slimy wonderfully goofy Uh, in japanese he's hochu otsuka and that's delicious he's chewing that scenery like no one's business uh, Hochu has voiced um, uh, Yazan Gable in uh, Zeta Gundam, uh, Chibity Crockett in G Gundam. Mm. Uh, he's, he's got a real real energy to him, and it, it, it definitely fits um, Beck's more manic facial expressions a bit more than Bucol's, in my opinion. But it, it's, it's two takes on the same character that really just work. Mm. It, it's another smart point of the dub, because I always feel like, you know, some people just want, you just want the same exact actor, but in English with no deviance whatsoever. And this is a ch- chance to explain like, no, sometimes you can have a totally different take and it works equally well.
0: Yeah, I too tell myself that I should at least check out the Japanese dub once and time and time again, I just slipped into the dub. It's just so easy. It's just it's so a very comfy comfortable blanket. Yeah, it's the power of nostalgia. Hey, I watched this. I've originally watched The Big O at a formative young age of... I don't know, late middle school. In a warehouse, Beck and his goons celebrate on the pile of ransom money provided by Mr. Wise. Beck is particularly exultant, thinking he successfully framed Crowboy, meaning Roger. Roger bursts through the wall and is now red Cadillac. Beck uses a gigantic claw to both damage and move Roger's car. He also uses an equally large magnet to pick up Dorothy and bring her to him. A lot of nice animation touches here, especially with Dorothy's frizzled hair.
1: Yeah, there's so many little things going on here, uh, especially you know the moment, the sort of slow mo moment when the when the car bursts through the wall, and you can see Beck and uh, and his goons reacting. You get to see the brick slam into the face of the one henchman, and then and in, in the follow up scene, you can just see him like you know with his hands uh, up up covering his face. Just so le- so many like little tiny you know, moment to moments, uh, that, that just make this a real treat.
2: This whole scene definitely speaks to the creative teams, uh, just love of just retro television. This whole thing feels like something very filmable on a low budget. Like I know that their goal was to create, you know, a high budget version of a, of a tokusatsu thing, but like the, the giant cartoon magnet and everything, it, it it's just so good. It's such a believable, believably built prop essentially. And the whole thing just, it, it, it reeks of just the most delicious camp. It's the most boxy remote control with two buttons ass thing. I love it to death.
0: Yeah, there's a version, a live action version of the Big O that's basically 99% filmed in like quarry somewhere. And that would be equally as fun and equally as campy.
2: I want to see that. I want to see the practical effect for the big piston punch.
0: Yeah, Netflix, where's our live-action Big O adaptation? I'm sure you could pick up the rights on the cheap. You've got that Yu Yu Hakusho adaptation in the pipeline. I, I feel like every two weeks I wake up and there's
2: a new uh, live-action anime being produced by Netflix. Like The the, the One Piece one is happening. It, they They keep saying it's happening. It might actually come out. I'm scared of it.
0: Yeah, I'm both... Ironically anticipating the Gundam film and dreading it because we're gonna have to cover it immediately because we're gonna need we're gonna s- marinate in that discourse, but also that means I have to dedicate a lot of time to prepping episodes on that.
2: <laughs> I already forgot about it. Is that it's been real? so long since it's been so long <laughs> since they've said anything.
0: I'm assuming it's still in development. It's got that questionable director attached to it. The Metal Gear I- solid guy. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's it's
2: if Legendary ever gets into like any trouble, it's gonna. I feel like it's first on the chopping block. Like, nope, we're done. It's some sort of, some sort of Warner Discovery type meltdown. It's just gonna be gone one day, and we're gonna be like, oh yeah, they did announce that. What a shame!
1: Don't worry, folks. We'll be covering G Savior soon enough. <laughs> That's true.
2: My, my boy Mark Curran. Let's let's go. <laughs> I've seen that film I think three times and I'll be damned if I can tell you a single thing that happens.
0: <laughs> it's a real it's a real uh. collective memory loss there. I need speak I'm not to air my like plans for the future. I gotta find a copy. There are no H D cuts of it. I hate that. I hate like covering a show on Giant Robot FM without H D cuts because if I want to make memes, I hate using standard definition shit for memes. It just <laughs> it's awful.
2: Oh, I do, I do remember one thing about G-Savior. The The female lead in it is the same lady who voice acts uh, Lady Un in Gundam Wing.
1: Oh, shit. Oh, shit.
0: That rules. Hell yeah. All right, I don't know how to transition to my next point, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to attempt to nevertheless. <laughs> Roger tackles Beck. Beck escapes on one of her mechanical lifts. Roger reaches Dorothy, but she seems possessed and not at all herself. She hugs Roger tightly, too tightly. She's trying to squeeze the life out of him. So I kind of went on a rabbit hole this time around reading the scene. Like the staging here, so I read it two ways. And I think there's one way to read it and one more far-fetched way, but I'm still going to present that way to you all. Because the staging, no matter what, emphasizes Dorothy's affections for Roger. We don't really know how this device works, I don't even know if technically this is the same device Beck used in episode 2. I imagine it is. It looks very similar. Um, But again, it could be a little different. Like, it could manipulate pre-existing thoughts, like, pervert them. Or it might completely rewrite her programming or allow Beck to mind control her. Like, both reads support Dorothy's love for Roger. I think the most obvious interpretation is that Beck is controlling Dorothy, and Dorothy's willpower, coupled with her love for Roger, breaks his hold which would mean that she's telling Roger she loves him in the event that this is the end for them and him. But maybe Beck is more observant than we think and has come to his own conclusions. Like maybe he inferred either Roger or Dorothy love each other and is trying to weaponize that love against them. Because again, we don't see... All this hinges on, I don't know if Dorothy's saying, Roger, I love you, or if Beck is, like, reading uh, Dorothy's mind or is inferring Dorothy's feelings and, like, speaking into that little bulbous microphone, like, bulbous, like, pen that he's using to control Dorothy and saying, Roger, I love you, because we never see that happen. Like, maybe, and this is more far-fetched, but hear me out, maybe Beck picked up on this in episode two and is only now using that knowledge to his advantage, which means he fed that line to Dorothy. A real hamstrung way to read it, but still, it does emphasize, in the end, Dorothy's love for Roger.
2: I think, honestly, he's he's just reading it very surface level. Roger is, is palling around with a woman, and it would really catch Roger off guard if she suddenly confessed love for him. I think that's... I mean, Beck is a very cunning guy. I totally see that. Um, but I I don't know. Something about... I, I feel like he's not the type to pick up on interpersonal relationships like that, or at least not to key into them so easily.
0: Yeah, that, that's how I feel too. In to Jason Beck's credit, though, this is a point a bit later in my notes, but I'm going to bring it up here now. Anyway, I people credit Beck with building the Beck Victory Deluxe. Like I'm jumping ahead, but he created this fucking robot, or commissioned someone to create it, possibly based on the plans he looked at for the Dorothy One. So he does have some smarts. I don't know if that imply it means that he can pick up on interpersonal relationships well. I do think he
2: has at least technical smarts because he he did have that whole operation in episode one with the, the the bank vault and and controlling Dorothy one with the tentacles. I feel like he he's at least got that much because because Weiss talks about you know they they wanted armor components and metal or whatever, and I, I feel like him and his goons just banged away with some hammers or, or or he ordered his goons to bang away with some hammers enough to to build the deluxe.
1: Yeah, I don't think Beck's criminal mind is touted in both of his appearances in this, uh, at least in this first season, because they both involve, you know, information being ferreted out and then manipulated to ends and sometimes improvised. Certainly, you know, Beck's plan in this episode was just initially to, you know, continue to milk uh, Dandy Wise for money. And it was only the, you know, the emergence of Roger that caused the, the improvisation to get revenge.
2: You know, can we just talk about what an interesting name Dandy Wise is? I was just
1: gonna say, like this, this no
0: offense, PMC. This like punctures your theory because Dandy (laughs) Wise is such an aristocratic name. It's like one of the upper crust in Downton Abbey or something. Like I present to you, audience, Dandy Wise, fifth of his name.
2: Does Roger ever say Dandy in the English dub? Because in the Japanese version, when Mister Wise is talking about how he didn't want the truth of Francis to get out, Roger just goes dandy and but the dub he just says mr wise yeah
1: no i had noticed that because i, I w- w- when i was watching the episode i noticed that and i, I just yeah i leave the subs on because i'm looking for differences and i noticed that when he said mr wise in the bomb I was like is dandy his first name really <laughs> and i feel uh, like
2: maybe maybe the dub script was like if we omit this no one will notice it's fine it sounds silly
0: I mean, the name does fit him, like, appearance-wise. Oh, yeah. Like, if you believe that he wasn't a rich originally, he that would also support my point that he is a pro- He became a product of his environment. But see, I feel like he recreationally plays polo three to five times a week. Like, this is a guy who hits the golf course frequently.
1: I was going to say, this is the guy who rides a dandy horse, So which I'm going to post about because I love posting dandy horses. Please carry on. <laughs> uh... <laughs>
2: that's great um i was gonna say the names in big o generally are pretty good like there's some oddity like stuff like bonnie fraser rules yeah bonnie fraser is such a believably fiction name but then there's like you know there's casey jenkins which is fine on the surface but then you look at the spelling of it on the (laughs) business card and it's like Cass Cassay jenkins or something and it's it the whole thing's just blown apart
0: that's some gun and wing ass pronunciation, like
1: D- uh, Dorothy's father
0: Dorlian. Ha- Remember that PMC? Yeah, like
1: the yeah. Because weird... they, they say like, what is it? They say uh, Dorlin, and it's like Darlian is how it's spelled. I'm yeah. Right. yeah is, you know.
2: Catch a Rebaba winner.
1: Ah, oh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: like,
2: What a good, a good show. Oh man, what a I'm what a bunch of it. Canadian actors doing their best and worst. All the principal actors are so good in that dub, but then everyone else is like, I mean, they're not all quite General Septum, but they're on mm. that level. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're, maybe, they're maybe a half star above General Septum.
0: Roger looks deeply into Dorothy's eyes, which breaks the spell. Beck calls his mecca, which he named the Beck Victory Deluxe. God wow. damn! Like, what a good name! Like, I think it's the perfect name for a mech in this show. It's hokey and sincere, or a blending of opposites, but that pair very nicely with each other, which I think is really at the heart of the big O. Could you? It's a mech, though. It's not a mega deuce, right? I felt weird calling it a mega deuce. Not all mechs in this world are mega deuces, correct? I feel that's correct. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think the mega deuce is specifically a a. There are two things I would say. One that it is a it is a, a piloted large robot. And the other thing I would say is that there is some level of sentience attributed to it, which I do not think is the case for the Back Factory Deluxe.
2: Like, not to get terribly ahead, but there is also the distinction later in the show of a Mega Deuce and a Big. So, I mean, I guess it just goes on to... The, the eternal like what makes a Gundam a Gundam conversation does it need the V-fin does it have to be tricolor does it does it need this does it need that so it just becomes just an endless series of pedantic questions so like I th- the series is so cagey about what is and is not a Megaduce but I feel like in this instance this this is not a Megaduce this is purely gut feeling
0: yeah but it's only a Megaduce if it's from the Megaduce region of France <laughs> Otherwise it's just sparkling wine. Also, I feel like it has to be created like in the before times. Like megaduces can't be made yesterday. It has to be made forty like previous to forty years ago.
2: Maybe maybe like a key component of the Megaduce classification is that it also nebulously has to be connected with memory as a concept. hmm Cause like did they ever did they ever call any of the monsters Mega or I don't think
1: so none of the monsters yeah because I think the like the in terms of the 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 ones that are fought that are referred to as such I mean Bonnie's is definitely a megaduce the one that comes from underwater is definitely a megaduce uh I I mean the archetype is a skeleton <laughs> which I guess is a mega deuce. Uh, but like beyond that I don't know about the uh the other ones i don't I don't think so
0: It reminds me a bit of the Stradivarius instruments. Like a Stradivarius is like an older violin, cello, viola made in a certain location at a certain time. And people theorize that the sound is clearly different. Like there's a richer sound to Stradivarius instruments. And people theorize that's because to transport the wood used to make these instruments in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, they transported them via waterways, rivers, and it literally went downstream, the wood, before it was built. And people think that that process and the, the quality of water at that time had a significant impact on the final product. Like You can't build something today that sounds like a Stradivarius, just like I guess you can't build a Megadeus in the year of whenever the fuck contemporary time takes place in the Big O. That's so cool. That's super interesting. I love that kind of detail. Yeah, Sam. All right, and my next comment's going to, I think, anger some people. I like the big the Beck Victory Deluxe. I also don't like to invoke Trump on this podcast, but I feel like if Trump, he would not design a mech, but if he bought someone to buy, like to design a mech, it would be kind of like the Beck Victory Deluxe because if you take a look at it, it's entirely covered in gold plating, has a monogram belt, its headpiece looks like a crown, which I think speaks to Beck's hubris, and I feel like, yeah, this is like a Trump mech. I like the Beck Victory Deluxe. I don't like Trump. I just feel like it's decadence incarnate. And I, the, the two kind of pair together, unfortunately, for me.
2: I, I did like halfway roll my eyes, and then I remembered the like solid gold toilet room or whatever, <laughs> and I'm like, no, yeah, th- this is absolutely the kind of opulence. I see where you're coming from, 100%.
0: I hate to say it, too, but there's a dorky quality to the Beck Victory Deluxe that I don't want to diss. PMC, what did Andy tell us to invoke at this point last episode? Was it... um. Oof, hold on
1: it completely slips my mind you're right though that we were instructed to bring up something it's the red baron i think oh yes 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 the red yeah 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 there's like, a particular maneuver right yeah
0: super robot red baron not the german ace pilot from world war one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i think it does a similar thing with its hands again i like the back victory deluxe i just i can't get that out of my head
2: uh, I was just say I like all the um, cartoon uh, stock sound effects going on whenever the Beck Victory Deluxe does literally anything, just to highlight the buffoonery of it all.
1: The comic timing is all incredible. Like I definitely laughed out loud during the initial bit when it was trying to, you know, almost even before. I mean, we saw a little bit of it early in the episode during the prison break, but here we get, you know, this this uh, it's gonna oh it's gonna burst from the ground just like the Big O, and it's gonna be this big a trump card used to buy, uh you know used by Beck in, in and <laughs> finally getting his revenge on on uh roger but it can't even burst through the ground right <laughs> just sort of like uh, uh, you now it's stuck was it and and by the time it actually shows up you know roger's already around the corner it makes me
2: think too um when they break him out of prison initially, and they just, like, straightforwardly just, like, smash the walls open, and then he goes, Yeah, couldn't they have done that with a little bit more style? But, like, you want style out of the Beck Victory Deluxe? How? How do you How do you deliver that?
0: Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Beck Victory Deluxe shows up in a Super Robot Wars game, right? Yes.
2: Uh, I, If my memory serves, it's actually briefly recruitable for, like, a stage or
0: two. I'm going to look more into this for our Big O Season 2 history episode whenever we get around to recording it, because I we didn't cover any of the video games. And there really are no video games to speak of, but I think there's, there's definitely one Super Robot Wars that the Big O factors into. But I think there might be another one, too. There might be two.
2: There are, I, I guess you could say two. It, it's in Super Robot Wars D, which is a Game Boy Advance game, and it's in uh, the Super Robot Wars Z quote trilogy unquote of games because it's like the the there's two parts of the second and third game so i guess it's like five or six game i don't know but big o's in all of them oh wow and um it's uh it's a major factor in all of them too like the they they actually like really go the full mile into integrating um how it it factors into the setting and how i mean super robot wars does a really good job of of making the anime and 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 everything just tie into the gameplay and mechanics and like i i, I don't want to get into it but the way it does the the finale of of big o season two is like one of the most interesting stages i've ever played in that game because that game is like so stale in and, and uh, to and to win the stage you must defeat all enemies and that's just like the only objective and then it just does something really interesting with big o that made me very excited because Man, do I love the Big o. I love to see it represented in such a cool way.
1: Yeah, I want to mention actually shout out to uh to to one of our uh supporters uh Zappaslave who was actually talking about some of the some of the canon fusion stuff going on with how Big O is implemented and like explanations for like what are the Paradigm City domes a part of and stuff like that. Uh there's apparently some very cool stuff out there that that integrates all that and It's
2: it's a really cool setup. Um Unfortunately, none of those games have been fan-translated yet, uh, to my knowledge. There, there have been, like, people have done, like, you know, uh, plot summaries, but there's not been, like, you know, beat-by-beat character dialogue or, or, or text integration or anything like that. But from what I've read, it's, it's super cool the way they, they blend everything together.
0: One of these days, I'm going lit- to legitimately sit down, maybe with PMC, and play a Super Robot Wars game. I feel like a fraud of as a mecha podcaster with my lack of <laughs> Super Robot Wars experience.
2: I just remember booting up. Um, I think it was the first game in Z three, and it's the um, they they adapt the first episode of season two of Big O, and uh, the the it has like the the scenario name, which is the same name of that episode. And they actually like insert the clip of you know, cast in the name of God, ye not guilty, while sure promise is blaring. I'm just like, Ooh. yes, yes, it's so perfect. I'm I'm Leo pointing. It's amazing. It's the thing I remember as I remember it.
0: Oh, that's the good stuff. Just full on, just neurons activating, like, yes. Beck and his goons chase after Roger, who's got Dorothy slung over his shoulder, unconscious. A good thing to note here, when it, analyzing back, is that he doesn't pilot the Mecha. He's got his underlings doing all the heavy lifting, which is another indicator
1: of his sleaziness. So, you know, I feel like this is a thing I'm missing on, because I I know from my childhood watching something like Power Rangers, this sort of, like, uh, group cockpit is something that happens. I guess I wasn't certain on the on the division of labor, but I definitely feel like this has got to be... There's probably a lot of throwback and references going on here with this arrangement that I'm not picking up on besides the general premise, but I do like it. I do really like... because I, you know, I don't know what, to what extent there has been a crime boss and his henchmen piled a Mecca together, but I, I like it and I want to see more of it.
2: I actually mentioned this um, when I was doing my thread uh there is just such a primal reaction to that like villainous trio in the in the robot doing the thing there is like a very big history of that um uh andy would know a lot about Mm -hmm. it because i know he's a big tatsunoko guy but it's um very much in that whole time bokan series thing all the bad guys there is that there's there's a very bossy woman and she has two goofy underlings and she makes them do all the work like there's there's like I don't know, 15 of those shows where they just reinvent that concept every single time. It's, it's, it's where we get Team Rocket from, basically. Uh, yeah. It's that setup. And uh, just, I think it speaks to how powerful that is that even if you don't know of that storied history, your brain sees and goes, this is good, I like this.
0: Beck loses the pair in the alleyways. He doesn't have long to continue his search before the big O bursts out from its subterranean home. Like the sniveling rat he is, not to editorialize, Beck attempts to run away. He fires two missiles from the Beck Victory Deluxe's chest to keep Roger at bay. Undaunted, Roger lets loose two of the Big O's chain grappling hooks, which he uses to pull Beck back to him. Beck manages to break the chains with his finger lasers. He tries the same thing on the Big O, but the lasers bounce right off it. S- a lot of great mo- mo- uh, moments here, like the two Moby Dick anchors bursting through the flames and penetrating the Victory Deluxe's chef's kiss, and also really like the Big O with its like arms and a put him up pose deflecting the lasers. All very good sequences.
1: The shot that pose. Yeah. Oh, go ahead I was gonna say the shot of the laser arcing off the dome in the background, just like t- like top ten moment in this series for me.
2: Yeah, I think of that shot a lot. I want to. I want to say it was maybe in one of the tsunami promos mm. or something. But like, yeah, it's such a good shot. It's so well animated. I love it. But uh, I, I was gonna say the like the put him up pose. Um, I, I, if I remember right, that's that's his um defense animation in Super Robot Wars because I think he's Ooh. got those like huge steel plates on the arms. So you get to see that a lot. Um, this is probably my favorite uh, Megaduce fight in season one. Uh, just because it's so the, the big o looks scary in this in this fight It it's an ominous force and i feel like that's even reflected in, in the music choice because this specific track that they play i feel like always is it is one that they lean into when the enemy is at some sort of advantage but this time i feel like it highlights just how done roger is with this whole shenanigan he cannot you know, he says later you know even my patience has its limits and you really feel that in this fight because it's it's a mean one all the shots of big o look really ominous and shadowed just the way he just pulls back in the way the the, the punch explodes everything but the cockpit head Ugh, it's so good
1: truly as uh as tommy lee jones once said roger cannot sanction uh, Beck's buffoonery. <laughs> oh I oh forgot God, what about a, that! What a great
2: quote. <laughs> oh, I wish, I wish I would have remembered that. Oh, that's. I love that. I love remembering
0: that. Straight, like, I imagine if I were Jim Carrey in that situation, I'd just be like, I feel absolutely destroyed. <laughs> what, you, you know, do?
2: I'm I'm gonna say it right now: Jim Carrey would make the perfect Beck.
0: Oh fuck yeah! You wouldn't. Like, there's 100%. no way. There's enough money on this earth though to get <laughs> Jim Carrey to play. Back in a, like a Netflix adaptation of the Big O, he
2: he's certainly more of a back than he is an
0: Eggman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I guess with the I forgot about Sonic because I'm thinking more of like Jim Carrey in his painterly phase, um, less like it was more of his like artistic phase rather than, but still doing camp, which he is. Though apparently he was. Not thrilled to be back in the world of Sonic, but he did sign a three-picture deal. If I, <laughs> if, if my, if I'm correct in that.
2: Oh, I I remember him saying he was stepping down from the role or something. I mean, I, oh, was I, he? I feel like I remembered reading that. I don't know. I wasn't too keen into the Sonic movie
0: stuff. I watched the first one and I really did not care for it much at all. I know everyone has the story of yeah, this last movie movie I saw before the pandemic, but I have not seen any Sonic film and I am I'm not a Sonic. F- Man, I'm not adverse to Sonic. I just have very little experience with the series.
2: Sonic the Hedgehog is the first video game I remember playing, so uh, it's 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 in it's in deep. I I am I am deep within the the camaraderie of the blue hedgehog.
0: Roger finally disables the Beck Victory Deluxe by severing its head. With Beck and his goons inside, he drops them off with Dastin, thereby exonerating his name. We get a scene with Norman and Roger. Uh, like straight out of an episode of Clone Wars or something, and Norm basically suggests, yeah, let's just wipe her circuits. She'll lose some memories during the copy, however. Roger says, leave her alone. There's still something bothering her that she wants to ask me about. Uh, the, the, like, the very service-level read here is like, uh, good, I'm, I'm glad Roger respects Dorothy's personhood and doesn't treat her as a disposable object. Like, don't wipe R2's memory, etc." cetera. Um, it speaks to his continual growth as a person. The Big O does what Code Geass couldn't, (laughs) recognize the ethical implications of a memory wipe and have those concerns inform a character's behavior. Since I name-dropped Voyager last episode, I want to also call out The Swarm, which also questions the ethics of a memory wipe. These were in my ancient notes, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep this in here because I was watching Voyager at the time of taking these notes two years ago. Um, I can't really—the episode's not great, but it's something else that deals with the ethics of a memory wipe.
1: I thought we were going to get through this recording without slamming Code Geass, but you know, here we go. Cross <laughs> that cross that spot off your bingo card. Now nah, this is a giant robot event. <laughs> it, it's
2: it's a wild Geass and Star Trek uh, one-two punch in there.
0: <laughs> yeah, some people would consider Star Trek Voyager the Code Geass of '90s Star Trek, and that's not. I'm not going to say no. That would be incorrect. But also, I like Voyager, and I don't <laughs> hate s- season one of Code Geass as some people think I do.
2: I, I'm I'm a mark for chaos. I, I I like the whole train wreck of a show. It never ceases to to make me laugh. I I rewatched it uh uh I don't know, maybe a year ago or so now, and uh I had even more fun than I did when I first watched it. It's just it's such a fun mess.
1: It's a circus and I can appreciate that, for sure. You know, I, I can I if I imagine if I rewatched it again I would I have to I would be screaming out loud at Suzaku, which I can only assume that's, <laughs> that's how that's that would go. Uh, you know, I, to, I guess to, to to get back to the uh, the thing, the thing I want to kind of focus in on just uh, Norman because obviously we are highlighting that the important thing here is Roger speaking about Dorothy in terms of personhood and acknowledging that personhood and how that speaks to his developing relationship with Dorothy. But I think it also does characterize Norman as well, and I'm not necessarily saying this is a negative characterization. But I do think because of Norman's role in the household, I think this applies as well to the Big O. He is the mechanic for the Big O. He has memories that enable him to repair the Big O. I think that's I think that might be explained later, or that it's kind of implied. And so, you know, he's always always thinking about these mysteries of the old world in mechanical terms. And so it's it's almost sort of a, a question of, you know as much as roger has developed his appreciation for dorothy as a person like to what extent would norman even be capable of that you know it is norman i guess my, what i'm saying is are we characterizing norman or is he here to highlight roger's development
2: i think it speaks to to norman's sense of i, I don't know, the way he's a utilitarian he's very like i don't know he is the 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 mech repairman role but also i think it speaks to like you know well dorothy could could potentially get controlled again and that would be uh trouble for not only you the guy i'm employed under but also her so would would the safer option be to prevent her from from being controlled and and have to do the transfer
0: i thought a lot about this scene like what has roger picked up on and what he hasn't i came i came to a few conclusions uh roger arguing against a memory white might indicate that he either knows how dorothy feels about him and or maybe shares those feelings, it's tough with Roger because I think Roger would have to be pretty blockheaded, which, again, this is Roger Smith we're talking about, not to pick up on what Dorothy's throwing down. He, He specifically tells Norman, there's something Dorothy wants to ask me about. And while a memory wipe would be cruel, I feel like, not to suggest that Roger should have wiped her memory, but there's also the implication there that He's keeping keeping her around just to shoot her down, which would technically be the more ethical thing to do. I'm not saying that he should have memory wipe Dorothy. It just makes me want to believe that he wants her to pop the question, or at the very least then, I either want that or I want him to be completely oblivious to her advances. It could be a little more complex than that, but still, I think Roger's still working through his feelings as well. I don't think he's completely oblivious to what Dorothy is throwing down. See, I read him as absolutely
2: 100% oblivious. He, he does not think of the the implications of painting her a portrait a self-portrait or anything like that uh i just i think he's a curious guy and a respectful guy and that's just surface level that's just how it is in, in my mind anyway
1: yeah he is equal parts meddlesome and oblivious which is a miraculous combination
0: Yeah, I'm not against the reads, but really that I also share those feelings, too, because Roger can be pretty oblivious. I will say, though, him specifying, out of everything he could have said, why to keep Dorothy around, he specifically says, Dorothy wants to ask me about something. Now, I know, of course, the writers are doing something there, and they want to telegraph Dorothy's intentions and emphasize what Dorothy's about to ask. It's just that, like, that's really, that's the one thing you're going to mention, Roger. I feel like that also indicates something. So we get another Roger P.I. monologue. Emily, do you want to do the pleasure of uh, reading this one verbatim?
2: Beck's gang learned Dandy's secret through underground channels. There are always hyenas sniffing around for secrets you don't want others to know. He found out that I was brought in on the case and reworked it into a plan to get revenge against me. It makes me sick to think that my fate's been mixed up with a punk like him.
0: So this really brings us to the end of episode 9 here. Uh, Dorothy says, I see you've you've painted in the eyes, talking about the portrait. Roger says, Dorothy, the one other question you had has been bothering me. Dorothy says, if we had no memories and we met, would we fall in love too? Roger says, well, that's, he stammers a bit, trails off. Dorothy said, I did say it was tough. Again, like even though I'm leaning in that direction, I'm not sold on Roger having those same feelings for Dorothy. I think he'll get to that point. I'm really curious how season two handles this because we're clearly building to something in season one, and I'm curious if season two, not that we're going to get to it anytime soon, is going to prioritize this plot point.
1: We used to get a lot of rhetoric about how Roger liked to to welcome women into the house. Uh, There was even the one bit when he went to Paradigm headquarters where all of the... The receptionist working the counter or sort of like eyeing him up and he, he was kind of flaunting like a like a rooster or something and uh, <laughs> we really haven't gotten that quite so much uh, at this point and there's a certain extent to me which uh, which it feels like because so much of what Roger does is performative the fact that he has put that away could be interpreted as a tell a sort of like oh well, I can't actually behave like this <laughs>
2: And he is really caught off guard by Dorothy's question. Mm -hmm. I, you know, maybe he knew what she was going to ask, but maybe it's also he's just blown away away by the sincerity of it, the bluntness of it.
0: True. And again, he's not one that who have made lasting connections with other people. So the fact that he's like, this is almost him coming to terms with the fact that he's that he's built something here with Dorothy.
2: I mean, like like you mentioned the last time, the the smooth ladies man Roger Smith saying a fucking bonehead line like "I'd recognize those curves anywhere," <laughs> versus oh, "Uh, well that's uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a wonderful little contrast."
0: I've really softened on Roger this time around because the. F- i guess the second time i watched the show which is the first time i podcasted about it anytime roger had one of those lines like i only do, I help the i only help women and the elderly i was like fuck you roger with your corny ass <laughs> lines but now i but now i'm acknowledging that there's more meat on that bone so to speak than i originally gave credit for truly a, a bone in the broth if you will all right that love that expression That brings us to the end of episode 9. PMC, why don't you take us away with the summary of case 10, act 10, episode 10, winter night phantom, which is, I assume, from Roger's perspective here.
1: Okay, so it is mostly from Roger's perspective. We have to put an asterisk on that. Case 10, winter night phantom. Poor Dastin. He's not the romantic sort, but he's come to me about this recurring dream he has. A beautiful woman standing on a dock is suddenly shot is it a memory resurfacing or something more sinister so that's the written case file description and there's a a you know a clipped on photo of the you know the the, the winter night phantom the titular phantom uh standing on the dock with the snow in the background and much like some of the other photos from these uh descriptions there is a subtitle which appears to be a very sloppily written. What does it mean? Not romantic, (laughs) which seems to be a reference to, uh, Roger, one of Roger's monologues where he says that, uh, Dan has never been interested in romance, uh, which is just like several weird layers of, of (laughs) like Dan, in the you know in the caption on a photo on roger's case file for the dvd talking about a monologue while dan was doing something i you know i can't sort through all the layers of this but it's very funny
2: there are a lot of wires being crossed in this
0: <laughs> all right Emily i have to ask again we got a, we got a sick ass roger pi monologue at the beginning do you want to this one shorter do you want to do us the pleasure of reading this one
2: this is a city that's lost its memory, but memories sometimes suddenly appear out of the darkness. The phantom that Major Dan Dustin caught a glimpse of, was it really an afterimage of something he saw long, long ago?
0: So the epi- episode opens, we have Dan-, Dan Dastin sitting in an empty theater watching a French film, featuring a woman who gets shot on a pier. This really could, like, summarize my experience as a film studies minor in college. You got a young Stephen hit hero. So I wouldn't be sitting in an empty theater. I would either be in a half-filled lecture hall with other equally as tired students or on my laptop after having downloaded the film on DC++, watching it in, like, low res. <laughs> um, but, yeah, watching a French film who potentially got shot on a, on a pier. So this is the memory that Dan suddenly gained access to. We have a lot to say about Winter Night Phantom, of course, but I think one of the standout beats for me is just the visual touches that go so far to personalize Dan's memory. You've got the black and white celluloid film, complete with print scratches, which I'm just screaming from the rafters, how cool that is. Q Marks too. Oh, I know. It's so so delicious. You don't get that in DigiPaint. And the way they, like...
2: You know, uh, it intersperses between, like, you know, what what Dan is seeing in memory versus what the show is presenting as film. When it transfers to the film, the the color grading is different, and it looks like a a
0: second-generation print. Oh, it looks so good. There's good detail in this. I know. I love the widescreen format of Winter Night Phantom. You got homages to classic films. I'm thinking of The Red Balloon from 1954. And The Big O Season 1 is gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. But I feel like this episode is lovingly animated to the point where it stands a cut above the rest. Not head and shoulders above the rest, but noticeably more personalized than the rest of the episodes.
2: This would have been the Mamoru Oshii episode of Big O,
0: like hands down. I was trying to, I sometimes talk about crafting memes on this episode. And this is a meme that's probably not going to make it out because I don't think I'm technically skilled enough to do it. But you, you both are familiar with the Criterion Closet, right? No. The Criterion, Criterion films, Closet. Like when hmm. they inv- invite like Criterion, you know, the Criterion Collection, uh-huh. um, they'll routinely invite directors to their closet, which features all the Criterion releases, and ask them okay. like, to pick out their favorite movie. Okay. So if Google's Criterion Oh, oh, oh closet, yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to do that like Criterion inviting Dan Dastin in. And what film does he pick up? Well, The Winter Night Phantom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But then I'd have to Photoshop Dan's face on some director. So I'd have to think, like, w- what director has a physique similar to Dan, which would be fun to do. But then I would have to, like, fo- if I really wanted to knock this meme out of the park, I would have to Photoshop, like, make, make a fake cover for Win Night Phantom. And I feel like, number one, that's some- some- something someone should totally do. But I am not capable of doing that.
2: This film really impacted me when I was a young man of 47 <laughs> and also eight years old. Maybe both.
1: I mean just 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 use some of the uh the Goncharov uh materials that Tumblr made a few weeks ago when they were inventing a, a Martin Scorsese film out of a whole cloth.
0: That's the thing too, like I can't I like I can't put Dastin's head on a seventy eight year old Martin Scorsese <laughs> or like a, a nearly forty Paul Dano. Paul Dano must be over forty. He's he was in the Fable Men's Spielberg's father, but you know, you know what I mean. How old is I'm not looking up how old Paul Dano is.
1: We're literally pausing for this. I'm, I'm really glad. Oh, fuck, oh. that was yeah. It okay. wasn't as old as I thought. Okay. Right, anyway, I was gonna say I'm glad that you brought up the uh, the important some of the important homages here because I definitely uh, I you know I'm one of those persons who who often has seen things downstream of important things. So like when someone brings up the uh, you know like a red balloon, instead of thinking about the important film The Red Balloon, I think of the first Wild Arms. So I'm glad you're here, Stephen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I go to you though and I need like. <laughs> jupiter ascending memes. yeah when well
1: when we need to do jupiter ascending that's I, i'm here for that
0: and i'm not sliding that film the slightest i honestly i haven't seen it but i i am a fan of the wachowskis and i, I dig speed Racer, so i'm sure i'd like jupiter ascending it's great
1: <laughs> it's better every time i watch it
2: and see for me every time i see a red balloon i just pog and think of winter night phantom <laughs> there which also oh, would be appropriate
1: oh, who
0: says on teal? there it is <laughs> so we cut to a religious service Vaguely Catholic, which is proceeding in an impressive-looking church. A remote-controlled robot emerges from underneath the floorboards. A girl notices it before it explodes, killing all inside.
1: See, it's funny to to me that you said vaguely Catholic, because I was like, well, he doesn't have any sort of proper garments on. Definitely not Catholic. He's facing the congregation, so definitely not post-Vatican II. Uh, (laughs) I just started going off on it. I'm, more importantly though i like how much is gestured out here we have asked in the past on this podcast to one extent faith or god plays a role in this show uh, in like the very first episode roger prays over the uh, then dying uh, miguel soldano and we're like wait a second what's going on here and here we have a a congregation but of course it's also a congregation where the person at the pulpit is a retired privileged member of the government elite So just like a lot going on here, that kind of crossover between politics and religion very much has like American Protestant vibes to me.
2: Uh, Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, As someone who lives in the South, that, that that didn't strike to me as very odd. Like, oh yeah, like the old retired police guy. Yeah, no,
0: he's in the choir. It's fine.
1: It's fine. Yeah, exactly.
0: Dastin, who had fallen asleep in a conference room, suddenly wakes up, surprising his subordinate. Daston says, every once in a while, I ha- keep having the same dream. It's probably from when I still had memories. So the second time around, watching the Big O two years ago, I really bounced off Dan hard. Not to say that I'm a Dan stand by any stretch of the imagination, but I do sympathize with what he's throwing down here. I don't know what it is, Emily. You have, you have the, you have, you can look forward to this soon because you mentioned you're nearing thirty. But like when you hit thirty years old. I don't know what that number indicates, but like the past starts hitting you in unexpected ways. Like, memory has a surprising way of creeping up on you when you least expect it. I'm sure it has something to do with past regrets and the realization that you have less time ahead of you than behind you. The illusion of youth that time moves at a glacial pace and your body will never give out and your future has yet to be realized is finally shattered. I was actually talking with some of my students about this today because all of my students, you know, they're high schoolers, they're all eager to get out of high school. And I I mentioned that there's a lot of good things to happen after high school, but, and of course, not everyone wants to return to high school, but at that moment in your life, like the way time unfolds, again, this could be a bad thing or a good thing, but there's a sense of possibility which I feel like you lose the older you get. There's a great and depressing line from Gatsby when Nick realizes, very awkwardly, he realizes this, that it's his birthday when everything goes down in chapter seven. And he says, 30, the promise of a decade of loneliness, a thinning list of single men to know, a thinning briefcase of enthusiasm, thinning hair. And I feel like even though he's in his mid-50, or mid-40, excuse me, I think Dastin feels similarly here. Like he, this this memory Hits him like a truck, and I, I feel, I, I that has happened to me before, very evocatively.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely know the feeling. Recently, um, one of my, uh, childhood best friends, he came, uh, back into the state to visit his family for Thanksgiving, and uh, just as kind of a throwback, we just did our, our old routine that we would do once we got out of high school. We just hit, hit up all the usual places, got food at the, at the old restaurant, that kind of thing. So it was like a weird mix of. Ah, it's everything just as I remember it. And also, oh God, so many things have changed. Oh my God. Nothing is the same as it once was, but also it's still kind of there and that's reassuring and also a little scary.
1: Big problem that we have in Jersey is that all the 24-hour diners aren't 24 hours anymore. So we can't do that. (laughs) Pour one out.
0: I was I had this dilemma the other day because I wanted to go. To, I wasn't that late. I'm no longer the young buck I once was. <laughs> but I wanted to go to a diner, and there was no good place to go to open at the hours I wanted to.
1: So, I had been articulating a more sympathetic read of Dastin during our podcasting this time around, indicating that he was changing and you know becoming sort of more independent, more uh, more art, doing a better job of articulating his sense of justice and his sort of idealized form of what his role in Paradigm City is. I'm still not like, I'm, I'm a little less warm on that in this episode. To me, this episode could also be taken as indicating just how powerful this kind of memory uh, to borrow the way Stephen phrased it creeping up on you is uh, because it, I, I think it postulates that so, even someone as unimaginative as Dan Dastin can still really be seized by a memory like this.
2: He kind of reminds me of like Char's Counterattack era Amaro, where he's definitely like, you know, he went through the the rebellious uh, you know, young teen phase, the 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 depressive 20s and now he's just kind of like awkwardly in this like half important uh military authority cop phase of his life where he believes that he just if he works within the system, maybe he can change it for the better, and he's just stuck in this way because there's just nothing else out there for him. He knows nothing else. He has no other friends outside of this interest of war, and there's just there's no other way of life for him. It, it, it's an interesting parallel, I, I think.
0: Yeah, so I was going back through my notes of Winter Night Phantom from two years ago, and I had—that was essentially why I didn't like the episode, because for me at the time, Dastin was such an unsympathetic character that because I couldn't sympathize with Dastin, I bounced off this episode. And again, he's not the most sympathetic character for me, but the realism of realizing that the system is fucked up and you're trapped makes Dastin's character a little bit more palatable. I'll talk more about that as we go on. I don't think it's like a— A perfect depiction but it's like stuck between a rock and a hard place because if you want to depict this character of course you don't want to romanticize his role on the other hand though it would feel inauthentic and dishonest to the world to suddenly I I, like I don't know where you would write Dastin's character from here like I would like to see him break ranks but also I'm trying to how would you do that in a way that doesn't seem insincere
1: there's also a problem, you know, that, that it is an episodic show, and to some extent yeah. you need uh everyone plays roles. And that's I think that's a big a, a pro a problem for Dan's character is that to have someone in his role and not break out of that role, it's like such a tension. Yeah.
2: See, I because I, I, I've always liked this episode so much, I, I'm always willing to like jump to Dan's defense, I guess, just because it's such a striking episode and I like it. But I, I guess there's also a problem of like Dan doesn't have you know there's not that much to chew on with Dan Dawson for these previous nine episodes so I'm always willing to be like you know oh well you know we're still early in the show so you know of course Don uh, Dan doesn't have that much going on but then this is his focus episode but it's it comes in so late that you're still just like what if there was a little bit more with Dawson? though what if we had literally any insight into his character but since this episode fills that function it, it, it manages to be mostly satisfying for me
0: yeah so much of the characterization of the big o hinges on memory loss as a conceit which is tough to write in because it's almost necessary for you the viewer to be in a position of ignorance just like the characters but also it's difficult to build characterization on that like writingly like uh, way of writing So Dastin arrives at the scene of the crime. His subordinate informs him that there were forty-six casualties in the explosion. Forty-three were innocent bystanders. The other three were retired paradigm bigwigs.
1: This episode is a way of showing us, like, little details just to remind us of, like, who, because I think it wants us to remember, in particular, you know, who who the victims are of the of the you know the political violence or the revenge. And uh, we we see the the shot of the the little girl's bracelet, kind of indicating you know that she was in fact killed by the explosion that she was almost on top of. But like, damn, that girl got claw fingers. This show sometimes just shows people with claw hands, and I think it's just like a stylistic thing. But every time, because I, I associate in particular with the um, the bad cop from uh, from the Bonnie Fraser episode, and I'm yeah. like, well, if you got claw hands, you must be you must be corrupt, and you must be a corrupt little girl. Uh, it's what is it the line from IBO is it's okay if it's okay to, to kill the children if they're guilty children right
0: I, sometimes as Austin Walker said sometimes the kids just have that bad vibe yeah.
2: I, I feel like that's definitely like one of the uh the other ways you can tell that this is like oh these guys did some of Batman the animated series episodes I feel like that kind of bleeds into that that hyper stylized it's like I know it came probably, probably after Big O, but um, the the, the specific
0: like hard angles definitely makes me think of Batman Beyond styling. Mm, yeah. yeah. Dastin sees the same woman from his memory, the one who got shot in the film in the crowd. She's holding a red balloon. He looks at her, startled. Emily, we got another monologue. PI monologue that's begging to be read in your voice.
2: Dan Dostin is a hard-nosed soldier. He's thoroughly devoted to his duties and is prouder of the work of the military police than anything else. In a different sense, he's as needed in the city as I am.
0: Excellent read, as per usual. All right, so this... All right, I thought a lot about this. I'm, I'm not, like, 100% satisfied with my read, but I want to uh, just get it out there. I think on the surface, you can interpret this as a good apples argument or a bad apples argument regarding policing and paradigm. And this is how I fell when I originally watched the episode last time. That's why I was so harsh on it. I don't think that is a wrong read. But I do think it misses the forest for the trees. Because I don't think Roger's making a qualitative judgment of the police. Which I think the big O has been pretty consistent in showing as the oppressive force that is. But I think this is more a judgment of Dastin. And PMC, I was thinking about what you said last episode about, on this time around, you're seeing more of a character arc for Dastin. And you pointed out some hesitations you had about that a few minutes ago. Here we have Dastin, like, finally beginning to awaken to the fact that the military police are Rosewater's lapdogs. Nothing more. They don't function to protect the well-being of the citizens. They protect the interest of Paradigm CEO. Again, Dastin's not going to become radicalized, but I wonder what or if Dastin will try to bite the hand that feeds him. I'm, I'm thinking about season two here. I imagine, though, he'll continue to slip into despondency as he does what he can to enforce his own brand of justice, which I admit is is problematic especially if you consider the power imbalances of paradigm city
1: yeah this episode i think the big thing for me with this episode is uh so let's let's compare this to what we saw previously in the uh, call from the past which you know the underwater episode where there is the bit where uh rosewater puts out the call not to initially shoot the rampaging Megaduce, and dan disregards it tells everyone to fire we got to protect the people outside the domes Point for Dan. Good job, Dan. You're you're actually you know pr- protect- protecting the people who live out there, uh, despite what you're being told to do by by uh, you know the, the head office. To to borrow the language of one of his colleagues, and here though we we're, this is like a much more talkative episode because outside of the final confrontations, everything's being done after the fact. This is a lot of crime scene report filing dialogue. This is very almost procedural at times, and he is interacting with. People in the uh, the chain of command, both above and below him. You know, he has his aide, he has his direct boss, he has the 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 board of inquiry, and uh, it's it all sucks top to bottom. It's not great, (laughs) Uh, and so like that that kind of really puts the brakes on uh, on being sympathetic because it is uh, it illustrates the extent to which we are seeing Dan recognize that uh people do not share his beliefs in like a very real and present way
2: i'm surprised it took this long for dan to get a little like subordinate boy it, yeah. it's it's something that i think is um is a, is a nice way to show like the the attention to detail of how american they're trying to make this feel because the the like senpai kohai relationship like you you see that in like every facet like um even in like you know army movies and stuff uh, from Japan that there's just always going to be that that one two older guy younger guy in any given role so i think it's nice that we see that very briefly explored but that isn't like a thing that they keep up with it it helps the american tone of the of the of the series it feels like they did their research on that they were conscious of that trope and they
0: they were like well they don't do that in american media so we're not going to do it as much Dan as one of his lab techs study the celluloid prints of the film from his memory.
1: Well, wait a second. No, that's not the that's not the print from the film. That's the um, that's the device, the explosive device.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right. That's, that's a <laughs> that's a, a relic from my old notes. A, a mistype. So they have a conversation about the it being an unknown li- language. The lab tech says, "I'm not sure if it's accurate to call it that, but some illegible letters were carved on part of the device." Dastin returns to the burnt down cathedral. Emily, you got to read this one because this line is so important to the episode.
2: He's most likely a man to whom romance has nothing to say.
0: You, your, it's your Steve Bloom is very good.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I've never actually practiced the Steve Bloom, but but it, it's coming pretty naturally. You should.
0: <laughs> this would be very illegal, but you should make your own cameo in Steve Bloom's <laughs> Steve Bloom's voice. Roger drops by Dastin's office just as he's on his way out. Dastin says, I don't know what this change of heart is, but your timing's bad. All right, so (laughs) I'm not one to dunk on animation here, but when Dastin is blocking Roger in front of his door, it's unintentionally hilarious because they move like puppets or stick figures. I mean, no disregard to the animators who worked on this episode, because I think it's honestly the best looking episode of The Big O that I've seen. But the movement in this brief scene looks like it was animated in Flash.
1: I love this. It's It's like the Zeta Gundam handshake or something it is like, I, I want to like, I legit might open up a video editor after the recording of this podcast and put NFL and Fox theme to this bit. Like I might do oh, that. You should <laughs> just, because it's just like that perfect. Like, and like you get Roger coming down the hallway to like, he's in his head. He's having a good time. And he just like, just does like the little block maneuver. Like it's got some real American football energy to it. And I love it. <laughs> I really
2: like it. it. It reminds me of of those moments in a Tomino anime where someone would just like accidentally bonk their head on on a door frame or something. Because because like you know, uh, Roger zigs and and Dastin zags, and then they both zag, and then the other one zigs. Like I I work in a in a restaurant, and like the the, the hallways and such that you have to maneuver in. Uh, everyone there's like tons of people. Everyone's busy as shit all the time. This moment is like. N- 60 percent of my day every work day so
0: i totally get it i love it to death sometimes my work day is trying to honestly take notes for my mecca podcast in a busy, busy english lounge <laughs> or making memes which is wild but of course they have no idea what i'm doing like yeah. if they see like my that my mecca day they have no idea what that is gotta protect <laughs> your secret identity steven i know exactly
2: How does it feel to be, like, to have thought of Big O when you were in school as a child and now be thinking of Big O when you're in school teaching as an adult?
0: There's something sobering about that. There's something (laughs) very very poignant and philosophical about time. That might also be a little depressing.
2: How how capital M memory
0: is that? (laughs) (laughs) Dastin's subordinate drives him to Paradigm headquarters. He reports his findings to the higher-ups, proof that the police are completely in the pockets of corporate interest. They have a long conversation they talk about one of the rando executives says like the world's been wiped out they talk about the possibility of the terrorist is from another country uh, a third rando executive says paradigm city is all that remains of civilization which all this like these morsels i just ate up even though of course the big out stress is that this stuff isn't important but still the the star wars sicko and me can't help but wonder what's up with this like where has this dissident been living are there pockets of intact settlements It feels like everyone but Rosewater is ignorant to the truth.
2: This is so wild to me because there's like dropping little narrative crumbs every once in a while like we've been getting. And then this is just them opening a small chip bag and just deploying it on the table. Like, oh, the whole world's been destroyed. Nowhere exists but paradigm. Excuse me? uh, What? (laughs) It's so good. (laughs)
1: And like, are we talking about like Paradigm City? We're we talking like the metro area. Is Electric City included? Like, do we have secret knowledge? You know, that is beyond the scope. It, I feel like it'd be so easy to go down the rabbit hole that I have to like restrain myself and say like, no. The point of this, the point of this, is about there's an official version of the truth, and that's what we tell people. And that the official version of the truth probably doesn't have too much to do with the actual truth.
2: There's also a thing I I honestly just now thought of of okay so they're allowed to be like oh yeah Michael Zabok, a German and, but also uh, <laughs> so, uh, some indecipherable language I don't know what it is it's French <laughs> French yeah, wh- not allowed German
0: legal not to be the cinema sins guy but did the like does the New York City library exist I know we get a library later on but like that's the thing, because Big O, to its credit, Konaka does this in the second episode. It says you can't think about the shit; it doesn't matter. It ruins the mystique of the Big O. But if you think about it for a minute, there'll be old newspapers everywhere. There'll be old books everywhere, full of old, ancient languages that don't exist. And if, but you gotta pretend that all that doesn't happen.
2: Like not to get too ahead, but like the way they mention, you know, they they the government orders all of the like, you know, uh dissident films burned like is this all French cinematography just no get rid of it German stuff that's pretty good we're gonna have a vaguely German styled military police but uh, French no but a b- bunch of revolutionaries just we're gonna kill off the concept of France
1: we had this guy who couldn't stop bringing up French art house films in our conversations and we're just gonna burn them all so we can finally put an end to this
0: yeah I'd be shot against the wall <laughs> for my Godard collection my French new wave films would be torched
2: it, it, it's the futurama bit oh my universal translator it only puts out things in a dead language hello bonjour uh, nonsense gibberish
0: <laughs> so dastin lets off some steam in the privacy of his police car dastin says that board of inquiry can kiss my ass those bastards only think of us as stupid watchdogs his subordinate says aren't we we are paradigms watchdogs right Maybe I'm reading a bit too into this, but I saw a double meaning here. Like, maybe the more naive officer is saying that they're Paradigm's watchdogs, Paradigm meaning the city, but Dastin knows they're actually Paradigm's watchdogs, Paradigm the company, protecting corporate interest. Like, even though he's always been world-weary, I feel like he's coming, not that he's going to act on it, but he is coming to the conclusion. Like, he is, he has come to this conclusion over the course of the show. Um, having Paradigm being the same name as the company and the sh- the city. You can obviously there's reasons for that, but also there you could do some fun wordplay with that.
2: Yeah, I, I totally had the same exact reading as you. Honestly, that's definitely how I read that scene. Also, um, this the the way the dub handles this, um, like made me like pay attention more to the subtitles. Because Dan doesn't quite get as as uh, swear wordy in the dub, he's like, "Well, they can stuff it. Uh, those no good pencil pushers have no idea what we go through." Instead of just shove it up your ass, you damn bureaucrats! Like, I, I like both approaches to it, but it definitely made me like more aware of like, "Oh, right, they were probably like recording the the like broadcast version and the midnight run version, so they just wanted to have you know an easier time by not having him swear in this take." And that's where I started noticing, like, the dub also is a lot less specific, like, in the ways about how it mentions death. Like, when they start talking about Sybil Rowan, um, Roger's like, and that's where she lived out the rest of her days. But in in the subs, it's just, she died. She died in prison. It's very straightforward. I, I like the more euphemistic approach the dub takes because it, it adds a little bit more of that familiar uh, P.I. noir flavor. But it, I thought it was interesting
0: also sybil rowan fantastic fucking name
2: that is such a perfect like a that era of like hollywood we're gonna give you a rock hudson ass fake name it's it it tastes so good
1: talking about this underling the thing that i am really trying to resolve in terms of um you know just sort of uh some uh some harshness is the this police officer ends up being portrayed as like very much a a a good young cop with a wife and a kid and he's just doing his job you know he's very sympathetic I think but here you know he lives in a very dystopic town you know to what you know regardless of to what extent he might consider Paradigm the city and Paradigm the company as separate things I think he's probably still aware of the chain of command to some extent and the extent to which it is wrapped up uh, you know with Alex Rosewater and company and so it's very much weird to have a a character I think is ultimately portrayed as sympathetic be giving us like well you know we I, mean, I don't know it's what we do right like it's just very very uh um <laughs> kind of giving it away just sort of saying the quiet part out loud.
2: This is another case that I found really interesting in watching both the Japanese version and the English version um, because in the Japanese version he comes across as a lot more like. <sighs> Naive and young, uh, just sort of like more, more of a yes man almost. Mm. And in in the English version, he has he has that quality to him. But Joshua Seth's delivery is a bit more like I don't know, like average Joe, world weary, like oh well, yeah, we we are paradigms while lap dogs, right? <laughs> so I, I don't know.
0: It, it it it's an interesting contrast. Dastin's superior pulls him off the case, putting him on a paid vacation. The chief says to Dastin, one of these days you need to learn what justice is really about. So I feel like my read is that Dastin was taken off the case because he was digging too deep. He was beginning to know too much. Like just like Zabok, just like Bonnie Fraser. The only thing keeping Rosewater in power is the ignorance of a politically disengaged population. I think that's something that the big O has been very consistent about. Dastin goes to Amadeus for a cold drink where Instro is playing. I loved this bit. Like it was I was Leo pointing. I was the I was the meme because I was like, Yes, there is Instro. And the the show it has shows a has a lot of restraint and shows a lot of confidence by just dropping Instro in here to establish continuity and not linger on it too long. Like it's little details like this that make paradigm feel so lived in. Like it makes me as a viewer feel like I can walk into Amadeus at any time, Instro will be there, peacefully playing on the piano, and I love that shit so much.
2: I never noticed it until this viewing. It's such a like blink and you'll miss it moment, but then it's like, oh, there he is. There's my boy.
0: It also helps that that is my favorite episode of the Big O.
2: I really appreciated it a lot more when I watched it this time around. Like, not that I ever disliked it or anything, but it stuck out more to me, this watch through. I don't know. Something about it just hit different.
0: I feel, every time I have a Roger PI monologue, Emily, I feel bad if I don't now give you the PI monologue to read. (laughs)
2: I feel so privileged getting, getting to flex the muscle like this. The terrorist bombing was again targeted at a retired elder employee. 26 passengers on a nearby city bus were killed in the explosion, as well as a young police officer who was on guard duty.
0: So that, that police officer on uh, guard duty was Dastin's associate, his subordinate—
1: and and as Emily already mentioned, it was voiced by by Joshua Seth. And so, of course, I just wrote down "Rip Tie from Digimon." You became a cop.
2: <laughs> in in one of the many alternate continuities where he grows up and has a different career, <laughs> I feel like there are like four different sequels to Digimon season one. I I never kept up with it that much, but every time I'm like and they're doing a reunion finale again wasn't that the end of season two yes but this one's different
0: i gotta watch those two Hosoda short films or yeah it's been a, so i might have watched part of one ages ago but like daston's memory has slipped away
2: oh the like uh our war game that the, the, the ones that were like cannibalized for digimon the movie in the u.s yeah i think so i i, I can't ever like unprogrammed them from the, the Digimon the movie dub it's it's not right unless they're playing like Mighty Mighty yeah. Boss Tones and Smash oh, yeah. Mouth oh, yeah. sometimes it's... they
1: come back singing a different song <laughs> <laughs> he's tone deaf
0: Dastin goes to a movie theater to collect his thoughts and probably blow off some steam Fortunately, he's not watching Digimon the movie when the movie finishes and he exits the theater he sees the woman from his memory looking exactly the same carrying a red balloon he runs after her, but to no avail. She loses him. I really like the animated short playing on screen. It's very like 1940s, 1950s Looney Tunes. It also like so much of this episode is lovingly animated.
2: I love when Japanese animators get to do this kind of thing, emulate like uh, the Western cartoon stylings of the time. There's um there's a scene in uh, uh one of the Lupin the Third films. I I think it's Farewell to Nostradamus um where they just play like they're flipping like someone's flipping through a tv channel and it's just uh they reuse like model sheets from tiny Toon Adventures and just color them differently because it was one of the main studios that worked on that i think it was tms that did that one and it's just like oh there, there's like pink plucky duck and it's it looks exactly like you'd expect it to it's great
0: yeah, whenever I think of Japanese animation studios cribbing on a quote-unquote Western style, I always think of Maishi. I think of the fully Cooly South Park bit. I also think of all of Panty and Stocking. And I really like Panty and Stocking for that very reason. Sometimes all the humor doesn't land, but the animation is just so evocative and interesting and frenetic and cool.
2: I, I like, Just earlier today, or maybe it was yesterday, I saw um, a, a retweet of, like, I think it was a, a Yo Yoshinari sketch collection where he just drew the cast of my life as a teenage robot or whatever, oh, and it's just like sick. This this looks exactly like you'd expect. Like it's 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 like identical looking to the show, or at least how I remember it. I haven't seen that in so long, but man, that 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 style match made in heaven. That's great. That's awesome.
0: You know you're a mecha podcaster and tweeter when you are now Googling my life as a teenage robot to see, as, see if it has any mechs for your gimmick account. That's how <laughs> deep down the rabbit hole I am. There had to be
2: like some episode, right? Where, where Jenny faces some some fake military use armor or something.
0: I feel like there should be. Wait, hold on. So this is what happens. This happens with each and every episode. I, I'm looking for my notes frantically. That's one
2: of those shows that just exists in the periphery of my memory. Like, I know I probably saw, like, 40 episodes of it as a kid. I can vaguely recall what some of the voice actors sound like, but the rest of it, gone.
0: Yeah, you're a little younger than Assembly. I remember the show existing, but I don't think I watched much of it. All right, dear listener at home, just give me one second. As you're in your car cursing, going, fuck, Steven, just get on with it.
2: (laughs) I feel like I watched a lot more Cartoon Network than I did Nickelodeon,
0: so... I was more of a Nickelodeon boy. Dastin visits Roger late at night. So the two... I read this as, like, them having a sleepover, essentially. um, (laughs) Just based on the framing, which I liked a lot. Like, again, I'm a lot softer to Roger this time around. I've been picking up on beats that I missed on previous watches. We got his more creative and artistic side in the last episode. And here we have, like, Roger being the role of a therapist, or, like I said before, best friend at a sleepover to Dan. The pair warm themselves in front of the glow of the fire as Roger listens to his old boss's problems. And Roger doesn't judge Dan. He does what a, a, like an empathetic human being should. He listens and tries to give him sound advice. I really like uh, Dan
2: saying, like, you know, uh, like Roger being like, you know, uh, what What are you doing here at this time of night? And then Dan's just like, uh, my, my feet just kind of took me here. I, I liked that. That was a nice little line. Because, I mean, I, I think everyone's kind of been there at some point. You're walking, you just end up somewhere where you never knew you were going to go, but you figured you might end up there eventually.
1: It's very noir, I feel like, to have that sort of line. Because I think it also implies, you know, being in the city, too, right?
2: Yeah, totally. Because, I mean, I guess there's so much other modes of transportation. Yeah. Like, I mean,
1: I, I am being quite literal there, but, like, yes, also it does. You know, I mean, uh, your, your feet are going to carry it. I guess you could be. on a a subway or something
2: but i mean like it's the implication of walking i don't i I don't think there's a lot of bodegas around where roger lives you know dan's not just like hanging out and just i'm gonna go get a hoagie and then hit up roger smith like
0: oh i want to see paradigm city bodega i just want to exist in that space that's where paro probably you know should have come from Uh, speaking of bodega cats
2: that's where you'll get a lot of the uh the really uh characterized uh depictions of people that maybe they wouldn't be qualified in doing
0: that's true too knowing what we've seen already i i don't i might not want to go down that hole so daston goes to the funeral of his subordinate
1: slash friend i always think uh, whenever i see this kind of bit with the uh the child doing the salute, i always assume that the bit of pop culture or i guess history that being pulled on there is the jfk jr salute is there another like famous child salute or is like is that the one
0: now that you mentioned that's the first one that comes to mind yeah sam all right and it was topical because i looked just looked it up jfk jr died in 1999 in july so and that was definitely a big news Mm -hmm. it was yeah i'm I'm sure that, that
1: what the plane went missing right yeah martha's vineyard something like that yeah yeah
2: it's such a natural little moment, the kid giving the salute. Like it it, it slots in perfectly.
0: Mm-hmm. Alright, Emily, we have two more Roger P.I. monologues.
2: <laughs> Dawson returned to duty several days later. It was highly irregular, but no one voiced any complaints. In this city, the decisions handed down by a certain man are law. But at this point, I don't really care. I'm just doing my best as a pro. The woman Dawson saw. Even if she's really an illusion, he probably has to find an answer that'll satisfy him.
0: Roger and Dastin confer at a heavily guarded amusement park. Dastin says, Oliver Garland, senior member of the Justice Department, will be giving a speech tonight in front of some children. He represents the management of the amusement park, I hear.
1: What a weird premise. I don't know what's know. going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's really... Oh,
2: boy, a Paradigm City official.
1: <laughs> oh, let's go to, Let's go to the speech, Daddy. I just want to hear the speech from this old man.
0: The amusement park park operator.
1: Yeah, the, I, <laughs> I mentioned uh,
0: Big O Mad Libs before in reference to the Kanaka penned episode seven, and this definitely feels like it. Let's just grab some things and put them together. Dastin says, all we can do is faithfully carry out our duties. Roger says, that's something that's never changed about you. Like it, Naturally, what we know about Roger, he would disagree. He couldn't march lockstep with the police he quit presumably on ethical grounds i would like a little bit more into that like a little bit more um exposure into actually what happened there but he thought he could do more good working on his own but it's also worthwhile to note that roger's not entirely independent agent either like roger whether he acknowledges it or not usually ends up working for or with paradigm in the end like more often than not, he's an extension of the police, even though sometimes he is wor- working at cross purposes, which I think the show is aware of. It's just um, I-, I wonder if Roger is going to come to that realization.
1: He definitely feels like a like a like a specter for Mass Affected times or something, you know, sort of uh, <laughs> an extra legal cop.
0: That's really like the crux of like Mecca podcasting, though. We're just always dealing with cops in one form or another.
2: Like how, mu- how much does, like, the public know about negotiators? Like, no one ever asks him for, like, a badge or anything. It's just it's having the, the nebulous title of negotiator just grants you, like, infinite, like, governmental privilege.
0: It's like, a license to kill is, like, a bond thing? I asked that question before. Are there other negotiators? Like, is there a guild? I want, I want the, the side story of, like, the guild of calamitous intent, but the guild of negotiators. <laughs> I want to know what the bureaucracy governing this institution is. I really liked the idea of a cowboy Andy
1: episode, but with a <laughs> oh, negotiator. Yeah.
2: Like when I heard that, I was like, "Yes, that would be perfect!" Holy shit!
1: You know he would be that- so annoyed, like like he was with Beck. He would feel that they were a fraud compared to him. I was oh, thinking that. Oh, earlier oh that would when be a great episode,
2: though, if Beck was like tried to be a fraudster <laughs> negotiator. Like he puts on a wig or something. He's like, "Oh, I'm I'm the top negotiator." Like he stages like a a. a, a uh, some sort of crime and has like t-bone and dove play his his clients and try to get clout from it
0: teddy bomber is such a good episode <laughs> that's what like pmc has the joke like every time he turned on adult swim was always there's that same episode of inuasha i had that same experience though with bebop and i feel like every time i turned uh to uh, adult swim on at 2 a.m it was always the teddy bomber episode playing
2: See, I don't know if it was ever a specific episode of Inuyasha for me, but I just remember the, the, the Fukai no Mori ending, uh, number four, just playing, just catching the credits of an Inuyasha episode every time I would ever have the TV on. Just that, wake that, up in a cold sweat and hear that Do His Infinity song.
0: That memory is going to come back to you like to one day, like 40 years from now, Emily. It comes back like every
2: two months, I feel like I, I bring this conversation up with someone else and they're like, yeah, no, totally. I remember, I remember the Inuyasha. It's the Shomaru standing on the tree, and the and the and the winds blowing his hair. The credits are going by, and it says that this was done with WordFit registered trademark.
0: So Roger and Dastin they continue their conversation. I'm not gonna go through all of this verbatim because it's a lot to chew on. We got there was a real actress named Sybil Rowan. She only starred in one movie, Winter Night Phantom. Dastin says they were all burned 30 years ago. This one, Roger starts talking about the founding of Paradigm City, talking about Gordon Rosewater expelling everyone with anti-government leanings, including Sybil. Uh, Roger says her beauty made her a symbol for anti-government groups. Uh, he continues saying, like, he heard a rumor along these lines that Sybil Rowan came from a country far away, <laughs> a.k.a. France. And then a robot, a larger size model than the one we saw earlier, emerges from the ocean and makes its way to the stadium. Dastin notices a floating red balloon with a note on it. A balloon truck drives off. Dastin follows. Dastin tracks the woman to appear. Roger arrives in the big O, ready to put down the destructive robot. Dastin approaches the woman and says, Tell me, who are you? The woman says, A phantom, one who grants eternal sleep to an accursed past. You know, shout-outs to Sybil Rowan or whoever this is here, because this is like the perfect line for a Castlevania game. One, who, I am one who grants eternal sleep to an accursed past.
2: That That is some real uh, uh, opening of Symphony of the Night localization flavor right there.
0: Oh, hell yeah. Dastin says, I don't know what you're after, but I swear you won't get away with it. And Dastin says, that's right, but even a watchdog has his pride. So I couldn't help, um, we have mentioned Bebop a few times in this recording, but I couldn't help but think of Cowboy Bebop's Jet Black, who left the police force on moral grounds and, of course, eventually became a bounty hunter. This episode really does feel a bit like an amalgam of Ganymede Elegy and Black Dog Serenade, two of my favorite episodes of Bebop. Like, both characters are haunted by their past but in different ways. Jet is haunted by lost love, missed opportunities, the ceaseless march of time. But Dastin is haunted by the arguably more terrifying and existential ignorance of not knowing and being cut off from your past, which if you actually think about it, like knowing that there are past memories or there are memories you don't have access to, like large swaths of your life that you have completely forgotten about, that is, that must be terrifying. Like that's why the idea of like suffering from dementia is, if, if you're thinking, if you're trying to break down the numbers or like trying to break down what it must be like to, on a day-to-day level, exist with dementia, it, it's a little terrifying.
1: Yeah, I think it really speaks to sort of the, the major internal conflict here, which is, you know, I, I think it is, this episode has highlighted Dan grasping for this mystery that he is remem- remembering, and then also it is his pronounced sense of personal justice. And here here it comes to a head. He has to, you know, choose to shoot her to enact his sense of justice at the cost of closing the door on learning more about this mystery. You know, which I think is why he the whole time has this incredible look of personal distress on his face because that is what he is going through. The
2: the, the, the quote unquote facial acting, the, the animation in, in this for for Dawson and, and Sybil both are really uh, some of Big O's strongest here. We got a lot of good, like manic, uh, silly expressions from Beck in the last episode, which were all very good. But just the the heightened sense of emotion is is really amplified with, with just the the drawings of of Dawson in this. Just he 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 looks like he is just in in pain, in conflict.
0: Also, shout outs to this robot. Um, I I, I should have wrote down the name. but Humanities. It's, it's nice PMC. Yes. No, I checked it's it ver- out beforehand. It's very 1950s. I talked about in our history episode how Sato was inspired by his love of all things nostalgic, and I feel like and many a lot of things, a lot of people have written on just like the the toy boom in Japan in the post war years. But like robots like this, if you look into it, were in toy stores around the country and in both America and Japan, and it feels like something out of time. And I think the design is uniquely retro in a really satisfying way.
2: Yeah, this is such, like, a, a, a American sci-fi, like, 60s-ass robot. I really like it. Like I said, when I was a kid, I, I just thought it was from a Toy Man episode of Superman. Like, it, it fits in that vibe so flawlessly. That That nebulous, like, Gotham City. Maybe it's, you know, gangster era. Maybe it's modern-day kind of time space. It's really nice. The way they animate it, uh, with its, like, extremely limited action figure sense of movement with its little claws and its little legs. Like, the way the, the smaller version crawls out of the church cellar door, question mark, uh, is really nice. It's, it's a great design, just the shots of it lumbering around, especially in the amusement park, just, like, have this great sense of childish wonder, just this great, like, at toy box style, uh, sense of play honestly it's great
1: it is also of course worth pointing out that the name humanities refers to the greek deities of vengeance which is certainly appropriate here given that the conspiracy uh you know uh incorporates multiple women potentially and also doesn't you know focus on vengeance
2: this is a front mission ass name for a robot
1: oh yeah
0: absolutely Hell yeah. I'm, after this recording, I'm about to dive into some front mission. Like, one of the imaginary numbers has to pilot a Humanities.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so unfortunately, though, for as sick as this robot looks, uh, it, it's quickly dispatched by Roger. And almost in parallel, Dastin murders the woman. The woman says, in one of her last words, I did what I thought was right. I know this would ruin the mystique of the episode, but I have so many questions about her motivations. And also, I really want to know more about the years immediately following the event. Like, when Paradigm consolidated its power in the wake of everyone's memory loss. Like, was there a vocal opposition that had to be stamped out? Because it seems that there was. And, like, through what means and how much did they fight back? Sunrise, where is our Andor-style prequel? I'm 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 telling you. No one would watch it, but I would. If only an event in the Big O was
2: a character that got named once in Gundam, then we'd have six volumes of a Gundam Ace manga
0: dedicated to the entire thing. Um, even though it's against the thesis of the show, because it relies on the mystery, at least season one relies on the mystery. I would love for a, like a Big O ace, like where's my where's my like Norman domestic comedy gag manga. I guess these days they'd all have to be
2: reincarnated into office workers or something. <laughs> that that seems to be the ideal spinoff. Dorothy is an OL people, and and the crowd goes wild.
0: <laughs> yeah, they would have to really lean on Dorothy in a variety of ways. Would
2: it all be right. as funny if she didn't weigh like a thousand pounds? I don't think so. I don't
1: think so. I think you need the you need the heavy gag, and the and the magnet gag too. Inevitably.
0: Yeah, there has to be a giant cartoon magnet. All right, Emily, we're almost done the episode, but we have one more Roger P.I. monologue, and it's a good one.
2: There are no records of Sybil Rowan ever having had a young daughter. Not to mention, no. Whatever the truth may be, there's no need to keep digging up the lost past. For Dan Dawson, those memories of a far-off day may have been an illusion.
0: So this this ending hit, like hit me like a ton of bricks. I've been I've mentioned this before, but I annually rewatch Spirited Away with my AP students after the AP test. But now I have a very young daughter who's into Ghibli films, particularly Kiki's Delivery Service. Like she'll root through my G kids Blu-rays and pick out she'll she'll throw everything to the floor and mess up my organization because they're organized in chronological order and she'll just <laughs> grab Kiki's, throw it to, like and brandish it. Like Kiki, Kiki, Kiki. But she is fond of other Miyazaki films, too. And I've been watching Spirited Away more recently. And there's something very intentionally melancholic about the ending of Spirited Away. I mean, it ends on a high note superficially. I mean, Chihiro um, has gotten her name back. She's reunited with her parents. And she's about to tackle her, her life at her new school head on. But there's also, if you think about it, if you track the imaginary trajectory of Chihiro's life going forward, there's something very melancholic about it. But she had this formative experience in this spiritual realm. And the older she gets, the more of it she is going to forget. But she's going to probably for the rest of her life, if she lives into her eighties or nineties, constantly have this nagging feeling about like what if. Like not what if, but like what was once. And she's constantly going to be like trying to remember bits that she previously knew but has now forgotten. It's like Jumanji of all things actually plays with this idea of memory loss too. And I feel there's something very tragic about dastin's maybe not tragic about the character of dastin but tragic about what dastin is going through here the inability to remember this formative bit of his life but also it applies to us like human beings when we age we lose that wonder of our youth like this could be an allegory for losing our innocence losing the wonder of youth expect when i think about the wonder of youth i always think about the holiday times and winter a snowstorm when you're six means a lot different than a snowstorm when you're 40. If you celebrate Christmas, the idea of Christmas, the magic that that holiday or those aesthetics might possess means something a lot different if you're six years old and believe in Santa Claus compared to when you're 34 and have different thoughts on the matter. So I feel like, and I feel like I don't know, that it speaks to universal truths of human experience. Those last few shots
2: of what is presumably Child Dawson and maybe the girl in the movie theater watching uh, Winter Night Phantom, and the way she's just like asleep next to him, then she lets go of the balloon right after we find out that "vous êtes gentil" means "you're so sweet." It it hits like a truck. Like Dawson is uh we, what we what is it forty seven? So I uh, he lost literally the beginning of his childhood so like there's always you know if you remember your childhood you know you had a lot of friends then that you probably have not seen since you were seven and will probably never see again that's just the nature of time but just knowing that there might have been some sort of connection there that you know maybe at at seven these people just never interact in each other's lives again just having that nagging feeling of connection—it just hits. It hits like a truck.
1: Yeah, it's a really vital moment. Like, and like I, to me, this is the one episode where the I, I like the ending song of the Big O, but I could definitely like just hear like the real folk blues kick in for this. You know, it's just like it's such a moment. where, are like, wow, that's really. It's such a door closing. Really, is is the way you know I think about it, just because of like the. I mean he's gonna probably still have that memory, but it's it's going to be even uh you know, it's gonna be even even more bittersweet now, to say the least. Hell yeah.
0: I think I think we have come to terms <laughs> as a as a podcast recording crew. This is a this is a phenomenal discussion and a great episode, you two.
2: I'm I'm very grateful to uh to to have been invited on and and of all things get to get to be able to be part of uh, the recording on my favorite episode because Winter Night Phantom I look forward to it every time. There's not a there's honestly not an episode of Bico I dislike, but when Winter Night Phantom comes on, I I get so excited. I could watch it a hundred times, and I, at some point I'll get there.
0: All right, so before we depart for places unknown. Emily, tell everyone, promote yourself. Tell everyone what a fantastic Twitter follow you are and what you've been up to.
2: So, uh, if you want to follow me, I'm at SpaceQueenEmily on Twitter. Uh, I've been watching a lot of uh, early 2000s, like DigiPaint, Super Robot shows. I, I wrapped up uh, Gravion, Gravion's Vi, and Dan Kuganova, which are all uh, directed by Masami Obari and i've moved on to uh the reboot of uh, guy king which i've been watching it's kind of like a it's it's almost like a boy's adventure show kinda i'm liking the tone of it a lot so far uh, i do a lot of of sort of live tweet screenshot threads uh it's it's what i really like doing uh if you like me if you want to hear uh, other stuff i'm on Uh, I I had a stint on uh, the No Cartridge podcast where I've talked about things like um, Project Aiko, M.D. Geist, and we did a whole series on The Woman Called Fujiko Mine. And uh, I'll be appearing again on that podcast soon to talk about something uh, that we haven't decided on yet, but it's another guest spot, so I'm going to plug it.
0: Hell yeah. I look forward to listening to it. All right. Speaking of looking forward to listening to PMC, hit up hit our audience with a deluge of plugs.
1: Yes. So there's a a lot going on uh, as this is this is going out. Of course, if you want to support us, if you enjoy this, if you want to support us the the work that we're doing. You can, uh, you know, rate and review on your podcatcher of choice, your Spotify, your iTunes, whatever. We would love to see. Uh, you know, I wrote a written review out there. We are independent, so we depend solely on word of mouth to get the word out there in our words into people's ears. Uh, if you want to support us directly, there is patreon.com slash giant FM. We have a bunch of things going on over there. Uh, we have a patron exclusive discord. We have a bonus podcast series uh, called Radio Free Mercury, where we have been covering Uh, the witch for mercury on a week to week basis of course uh, emily was on uh, a a guest of that series in the past Uh, that's going to be you know wrapping up for a little bit soon you know as we're coming to the end of the first core of witch for mercury we do have plans to fill that so you know so if you are a patron you know stay tuned there will be uh, plans for what we're going to do between cores of witch for mercury there are there are thoughts Uh, also we have another podcast series that we do called simulator which is at a uh, sort of premium $10 tier, where we do give Mecha video games the same treatment that we give Mecha anime. We've done the first three Armored Core games. We've done Zardion, And uh, recently we put out the first Front Mission episode. We're going to be recording another Front Mission episode to be put out in January, which will include some of the production history behind the recent Front Mission first remake, as well as our thoughts on playing it. Steven already alluded to the fact that he's playing it, and, and I'm going to be playing it too, which should, should be fun. I may actually do a speedrun of it as a joke uh, which will be very funny because I've never done an RPG speedrun before but I have done a route, and it does work so uh, that will be uh, in, in the future or probably online by the time this podcast goes out uh, besides that uh, I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use credit to Fretzel hashtag band Fretzel for the music that we use and I'm going to take one final plug which is that reminder I will be playing Armored Core Project Phantasma for AGDQ 2023 on January 9th 2023 bright and early i'll probably be talking about that more in the future but uh, if that sounds interesting to you it's the first time armored core will be at a gdq hopefully not the last and i very much look forward to showing that off
0: all right pmc i i disconnected all our landlines and our fictional room here i all the cell phones are off there's no way anyone can contact us oh wait for some reason i'm getting a discord notification that has an audio jingle attached to it